Jimmy Capra talks about the moment it sunk in, how big this seizure was. It sounds melodramatic, but I found out, I found myself as he's talking to me, now I'm sitting on the curb because I slid off the, and he's telling me this, I realized how serious <laughs> he is. So I tell, every, I tell all the guys, I go, um, we, got, we got to get out here. So we have, somebody takes these, this knucklehead, throws him in the local jail. We race out to Selmar. Inside the guys in this warehouse, they're still trying to figure out, because it's dark, we couldn't find the switches. We couldn't find the light. Billy Hoffman finally found the light switch. He turns it on. There's 36 pallets, 36 pallets that are all got these yellow sheets on it, like you would see in Sam's or Costco. And there's, there's, there's 21 tons of cocaine in this warehouse. Oh, God. And in some of the, oh and in some of the pallets, there's boxes and boxes of money. So there's, there's nearly 12 million in cash with it. Welcome to Game of Crimes. You know why? Because criminals need their that's sleep. By God, if you're going to get up and do your criminality, you got to get a good night's that's sleep. Exactly that's right. right. So sure, because remember back then, Mark, we got no lights and sirens on our cars. We got nothing. Yeah. Sherman has a little yeah. red light. Said, dude, you got to get out there before 10. So Sherman takes off at Mach 7. We're babysitting these guys, hooking them up, going through the place and everything else like that. So get done. I go down to, down to the car. And I get through the radio, said, get a hold of Mark Tuttle immediately, immediately. So I'm thinking, fuck, they got into a shooting. That's the first thing I'm thinking. I get a hold of Mark because Bill Huffman was the only guy. Remember the box phones? They they look like old mm-hmm. military sitting the on bag the old Motorola yeah. with the bag the phones. Yeah. Antenna, the bag phones. Yeah. So I'm sitting, I'm sitting uh, in my car on the seat with my feet outside because I'm smoking a cigarette. And I get a hold of Trugo. And, it, and I've never heard him so serious. I'm like, okay, I'm waiting to see who's hurt, who's not this. He goes, well, you got to get out here right away. I said, okay, what's the matter? Who's hurt? He goes, no, 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 no. We have to find everybody. I go, okay, okay. We, he goes, well, you don't understand. He goes, there's, there's millions of dollars here, and I think there's at least 5,000 kilos here. And I went, oh, come on, Mike. He goes, Jimmy. And he, then I could tell how serious he was. Get the fuck out here. He, go, he goes, I've never seen anything like it. I'm like, I find, so... And this is, it sounds melodramatic, but I found out, I found myself as he's talking to me, now I'm sitting on the curb because I slid off the, and he's telling me this, I realized how serious he is. <laughs> so I tell every, I tell all the guys, I go, um, we got, we got to get out here. So we have, somebody takes these, this knucklehead, throws him in the local jail. We race out to Selmar. Inside the guys in this warehouse, they're still trying to figure out, because it's dark, we couldn't find the switches, we couldn't find the light. Billy Hoffman finally found the light switch. He turns it on. There's 36 pallets, 36 pallets that are all got these yellow sheets on it. Like you would see in Sam's or Costco. And there's, there's, there's 21 tons of cocaine in this warehouse. Oh God. And in some of the, oh and in some gosh. of the pallets, there's boxes and boxes of money. So there's, there's nearly 12 million in cash with it. And we have one guy in custody one guy in custody. I'm like, holy fuck, what do we do? They, I got Billy and I, two years in job. I live in Tupacle. What the fuck do we do? Two years on the job. We got 21 tons of Coke, 12 million in cash, and you're going, what, what, what do, do I do? do? 
So, <laughs> so now you're talking. You're talking probably. I'm looking at twenty one point three eight tons. Yeah. So it's about forty three thousand yeah. kilos of coke. Yeah. Never, you know. So we, you know, we call our, you know, call the sack writer. I wind up calling the AUS. And you thought it was just a hundred yeah, kilos. So here, and here's what we got a hundred kilos. No, you so don't. So I actually, we've actually located the boxes that we saw going in. It was one point eight million in the boxes. It wasn't dope. They had just picked up money from some of these guys. And also inside, we have all these ledgers that are sitting on it. That's just ledgers and ledgers. And I'm like, holy shit. So that's when the nightmare started. You know, we, you know, we called our boss, called the, uh, the U.S. attorney and um, assistant U.S. Jim Walsh, who was the head of criminal at the time, um, who I always got along with really, really well. Susan Bryan Dyson, who was a shark when it came. She was a, a cross-designated pro prosecutor. She got out there. And, and Doc Murdoch was one of the guys that was with with me. And Doc, uh, to his credit, I, I got to tell you, because I'm like, where the hell are we going to find these guys? And Doc said, you know what, Jimmy, these guys, based on the condo and everything else, he found a, a matchbook that had a hotel in Hollywood on. He goes, I'm telling you, I think these guys, they like to live big, too. Okay, Doc, mm -hmm. what do you think? He goes, let me take some guys and go out to Hollywood. And him and John Emerson and a couple other guys went out there. They went to the... This is what we just think about it. Went up to, damn it, one of the fancy places in in um, in Hollywood, one of the fancy hotels in oh, Beverly Hills or I forget. The Beverly Hills Hilton? Yeah, something like Yeah. They go in. Which was made famous in Hollywood for in the Beverly Hills yeah. cop. So they yep. go in and go, hey, this is who we are. We're looking for these people in this name. Oh, yes, sir. They're in this room. Okay, great. Because they're smart guys. These guys are a little bit more senior. They go, can you pull up their folios? Yeah. Okay, they're making phone calls to this hotel and this hotel. Hey, thanks. Send another team to that hotel. They did the same thing there. Then they're calling a, a hotel in Vegas. Susan Bryan Deason. I, we show her all the stuff and everything. She's, we're getting state paper for those rooms, those rooms, this room, this room. Kick the door in. These guys, we get these guys. They're all uh, Mexican nationals. One, one guy actually is a citizen, served time in the military, but he's from Mexico. By the time the next morning came, because we're out there all night, um, we have everybody in custody. So it's an entire, it's an entire family out of Mexico. Their father was was a Mexican customs guy, related to one of the. And I didn't know at the time, you know, I didn't didn't know about cartels in Mexico. No, we none of us really mm -hmm. knew a whole lot um, about who it was, but connected to some major players in Mexico. Rafael Munoz Talavera was the head of it. He was tied into some of the major families in, in Mexico. Took us a while to, to realize that. The ledgers showed in a three-month period, just their money, they were getting $1,000 to $1,500 per kilo to move. And all of it was, wow. was Colombian dope. The markings showed, we, what we realized is the markings showed it was split between the Medellin and the Cali cartel. And all these guys were this Mexican group here, these Mexican traffickers. We're nothing more than the Teamsters for the Colombians. Mm -hmm. Hey, and let me ask you a question about that, Jimmy. Did you, during the course of the investigation and later on, did you become aware? Did Cali know Medellin had their dope that they were mixed together? Did they care? I don't think they, care. they didn't or, care. I mean, uh, there was pretty confident. And the reason we know this because everybody rolled initially. The, the old man, the head of the family, didn't. But the two main guys that were were there, they they actually rolled. The main guy who was did everything rolled. And I'll never forget. He said, "Hey." He goes, I'm not a, I'm not a drug dealer. He goes, you know, like when somebody buys oranges and 
and moves them to groceries. That's what I do. Uh, that's that's all I do. I just move stuff. I'm not a drug dealer. That's mm-hmm. a, you know. So, um, so we. And, and by the way, it's not heroin. I mean, right. it's heroin it's and be real drugs. This is just it's kidney, kidney dope. dope. Yeah, yeah. This is just kidney hey, dope. And how many bodies did you guys put in custody that night? Uh, I want to say seven or eight because we had so we had a ties to to Vegas. So we sent DEA Vegas out and um, to damn it the Flamingo, and the whole family was having a big get together. And these guys were supposed to be out there the following day to meet everybody to party. And, uh, you know, we wound up arresting the old man, the head Hector Tapia, who was the head out there, the father who was the patriarch. Uh, actually, everybody went to jail and we had to release a few people, family members. But uh, we had we had a great prosecutor in Susan Bryant Deason, great prosecutor, federal prosecutor from Jim Walsh. Uh, um, really good teamwork all the way around. You look back, we could have done things better. Throughout the night, um, this guy's getting calls to pick up money. So somebody says, well, if you could do it again, I said, if you could do it again, we would be quiet and we'd be going out picking up money. We could have picked up money all night long. You, we could have mm-hmm. probably had about, this is not, this is not like, oh, that sounds good. Probably another 30 or 40 million by the next morning. Oh my up. gosh. So, and, and what we would find out is, and, and I'll, I'll tell you the, the craziness about it. So when we talked to the principal guy that was controlling everything in LA and he was telling us this, no, I got to pick up, I got to do this, got to do this. And looking at the ledgers, uh, uh, when he was explaining stuff, stuff to us, cause he didn't, he didn't see himself as a criminal. I mean, it's so funny mm-hmm. how these, some of these bad guys look at each other. Uh, but, but he told us everything about it. He says like, they take, you know, they either get anywhere from a thousand to a couple thousand kilos a week to come up from El Paso. And, uh, he said that the Colombians owed them a ton of money. They owed them a ton of money for the, for a lot of dope. He said, the, uh, how did he say it? They're customers. And uh, they called him up and said, we're not sending you another kilo unless you pay up. Now, when I first told that to people, because three days later, I would find myself in D.C. in the command center as a GS-9 talking to people that I didn't know who the hell they were. I know they were important. Yeah. And I was telling them this and I got this. No, that's, that doesn't happen. That's not going to happen. The Colombians would kill everybody. And I would go, are you fucking kidding me? What are you talking about? Yeah. Aren't these the same guys that said, kids, you don't know what yeah. you're talking about. There's so, nothing going so on here. Think the Colombians would come up into Mexico with these guys. How like, they're going to go, they're going to be intimidated by these guys. What are you got F in mind? So, um, but they did, they, they, and so the, the week before we hit, there was another 5,000 kilos in there and another four or 5 million that was in there, but there was that much dope in there because the Colombians weren't paying. So they just said, Hey, we're not yeah. going to pick up their money. And that's what we're going to do. So because of a fluke in, in bad business, I mean, you, this dope should have been gone, right? Had it been going through like it you, should have, how much dope you know, would have been you know, in the warehouse? Funny, I can ask that a lot, a lot of time, but all I can tell you is based on the ledgers, they, they got up, they would get somewhere between 20 and 30 tons in a short period of time. And when I mean a short period of time, I mean, within a month and a half, and so in the in the three months that they were that I got the ledgers from, they made eighty one million. It was theirs, eighty one million in three months. Eighty one million was their transportation costs. Wow! So and they were wow. they, you know they had houses in El Paso, but they really had kind of estates down in Mexico. Some one guy was building basically a palace on a, on an entire uh, block down there, and you know we weren't working too well with the with the federales back then like we do today but um so there were some issues and then there was we we know there was a lot of corruption issues 
um, south of the border. And then there were some, I don't know if it ever panned out. We just passed it. Uh, there were some allegations because they, they never lost a load. They would bring loads across into El Paso and they never lost a load. Think about that. Two years in place, they never lost a load. It's kind of hard to believe, but they never. So well, what's your theory on that? So I think they probably did. They probably had somebody on, on both sides of the border. That's, you know, we hate to, we hate to think that way. To be honest, it still kills me to think, but you got to think. And, and plus, I think the other thing is we didn't have the tools that we have now, you know what I mean? Or even shortly thereafter. I don't think we have the, the tools or the information. And, and I, I have always said, I had a lot of respect for the Border Patrol, now CBP and everybody else. They have to make a split decision. I'm passing somebody through or, you know what I mean? That's, right. that's pretty tough. Well, when you got those tens of thousands of cars lined up, all you got to do is go to go to some your favorite search engine and look at the vehicles out there. You've got to pass people through. Yeah. I mean, one of the most effective tools they had, Murph, and it's when we talked to um, uh, JP about it, but uh, some other folks as well. When Kiki was killed, you know, and they were trying to get cooperation from the government, the, the U.S. government just shut down the borders. Like, and, and that you. was from the, nobody's coming that was across. From U.S. Customs Director Von Rob, I think his name is, who yeah. I still say yeah. had balls bigger than anybody because he didn't give a yeah. shit back then. He was, we got an agent down, and but, but you know, getting back to this, like I said, I find myself in in DEA headquarters as a kid, and before I went up there, I remember going to Trouble at his house. I go, dude, what are they going to going to ask me? I don't know what to do. So we said, and, and how many years and months do you have on it? How long uh, have you been a sworn DEA agent by this point? It was 1989. We hit September 1989. I came on in 87. In August of 87, <laughs> I got to LA. Dude, you still are wet yeah. behind the ears. Here you are. So you're a, you're, and you, in, you said a GS9 too, yeah. real quick. When you got hired, you were you a I, seven no, or a nine? A seven. My dad's son came on as a nine, some bitch. I had I was a <laughs> I came on as a GS freaking seven. I had military, I was a military child. I could go in the skiff in the Pentagon. I go, no, you're not you you are a GS seven, you're shit. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, so you are still you you're basically like a private first yeah. class if we were thinking yeah. of military so right. I, yeah. I never forget going to Mark Trubel and I'm like, Mark, holy shit, they're gonna ask me questions. He goes, No, no, no. He's got a I swear to God, I think we're drinking Bud Budweiser. He gets a Budweiser can. Thank goodness, Mary Ellen, his wife is an intel analyst. And I go, what uh -huh. do we know? Here's what we're going to do. She rolled out this piece of paper. We got the intel can. We got the intel can. That's probably what it was. It was a butt can. He puts it on top, puts it in a circle. He goes, who's the top guy? I said, well, I think it's this guy. Okay. Now we'll draw lines down here. Who are these guys? I think the, this guy, this guy, this guy. All right. That sounds good. Then that, So now I had a chart. You didn't know how mm -hmm. important this chart was going to be. Now I have a chart. He goes, this is what you do, A, B, C, D, F, G. Oh, God, I'm going to get fired. I don't know who these people are. Who are I going to talk to? <clears throat> well, when, you went to when you went to headquarters, did the SAC or an ASAC or your GS go nope. with you? Nope. No, they just, no, You're no, shitting. back then, man, it was just like, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you a quick story. So the GS I had at the time, who's, who's a, a good a good guy. And GS group, group is supervisor. a group supervisor. Yeah. Billy and I have been up for, and as most of the team is, for like going on 40 hours. Coming out of the warehouse, another group was going to take care of locking it down. We already put dope and the money away, and we got the dope and track trailer. So Billy comes out, and he's heading to his car, and the supervisor at the time looks at Bill. Mind you, we we just seized. It, it was in the Guinness Book of Records for a while. Actually, it was in the Guinness Book of Records mm -hmm. as the LAPD seizure, but that's besides the point. Yeah. 
we so now we have effectively got the largest trafficking organization in the history of the country, plus with dope and hand and everything else like that. And money. And money. So Billy and I are coming out of the warehouse, and the supervisor at the time looks looks at Bill. This is what he says. He goes, hey, you need an oil change on your car. Make sure you get that done. Bill looks at him and goes, fucking kidding me? That's what he was concerned about. Few, That's an inspection a, a item. A few weeks later. Oh, my God. A few weeks, a few weeks later, the guy, the guy comes into the whole group. As we just, we got, we, our stats are down. I go, our stats are down? The entire division should shut down. But it, at the time, it didn't. You know, it's not like a handful of years ago. I mean, it's, it was way different, man. Every, you know. Well, wait a minute. How, your stats are down. What do you mean? It After was, you seized 21 yeah, was, tons, it was, of course your stats are going to be down. September 28th when we hit it. Now we're in October. In mid-October, the boss is going, <laughs> Which is a new fiscal year. <laughs> we got to get going. Oh, my. So, again, listen, that was then. A lot has a lot yeah. has changed for the good and for the better. And I'm not just saying because I'm, I'm. I know. But we but were still an so old funny. school DEA, you know, like. What? It's like being in sales and you just hit a $10 million yeah. account and you've made your quota for the next three years. No, the quarters, and then next the next quarters month, it's like real estate. Hey, dude, you haven't got shit. Yeah. It's like, what if you, it's like real estate. What have you done for me so, lately? What have you sold so the, lately? So in doing the case, you start to, that's, so there's a level of, um, I said, everybody's got to mature on the job. We mature as human beings, as, you know, what's men, as women. And, uh, and you realize, man, I, there is a lot I didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't know. It's not, not because of your fault. It's just. You're learning. learning and you're going. And uh, so there's a level of, you know, there's a maturity process that you have to go through. And so I still, um, so my dad loved being a cop. He, he when he would talk about it and everything, it wasn't hero stuff. But my dad had no idea what a, an agent was, what a marshal was. If you had a badge and a gun, you were a cop and you were a good guy. That's, yeah, you know, that's how it was. And was yeah. your dad's? We know your dad passed away. Was he still alive when you made the no, seizure? No, no, no. My dad got to see me cross the stage and get my badge and creds, and he was gone about a year later, uh, two mm -hmm. years later. But um, no, before that, just actually, yeah, he passed six or seven months be before we did the, the seizure. And he probably wouldn't have really under understood it. But that's, that's besides the point. What I'm getting to is, so my idea of law enforcement is everybody's a good guy. You know, there's some bad guys out there, you know, some but everybody's a good guy. And, and I believe that. So you, you start getting phone calls from people saying, Hey, could you, so now I have these ledgers. Hey, could you send me your ledgers? Could you send me a copy of your ledgers? I say, could you send me a copy of this? I sit at my desk. Go, Absolutely. What do you need? And then you realize he's son of a bitch. I can't believe this guys are putting in OCDEF cases and they're showing little Silmar cases, this tiny little thing off to the side, What their cases that it's like, yeah, well, oh, yeah, my guy went to your warehouse. That's when I started realizing some of that was happening. I would get a call and say, "Hey, can you send me some pictures?" I said, "No." What do you got? Well, my guy said he went to the warehouse. I said, "Well, what's his name?" Well, I want to be careful. I said, "I know everybody's in the warehouse. I know all the guys. They talk to me. So, what's his name?" No, no. The guy started getting pissed at me. I go, no, I'm not doing that shit. Don't. But yeah. I did initially. I sent stuff out, and even the U.S. Attorney's office were, was calling me. Go, hey, I just got this chart from like Minnesota. Showing that they have the biggest case in the universe. They have one <laughs> kilo and they're using hours to, to send a guy to friggin' jail for life for one kilo. I'm like, you know. Unbelievable. So, you know, you, again, we're, we're much better today and stuff. And you, you learn fast and you learn quick. Um, um, but it, it was good. We worked on it for the next six years. And then I, I'm leaving out El Paso. El Paso DEA did an amazing follow-up job down there. Uh, they really did. And they wound up getting the... 
the accountant and everything else who gave us more information how things were done. Well, did you guys track it back to which cartel in, in Mexico was running this? So this is early on in 89, and I'm trying to think of, of uh, Munoz Talvera, and if I had Billy on the line, he'd probably be able to tell you. But uh, remember, it was, first of all, nobody at the time, and I say nobody, a, a, a lot of individuals, including people in Intel, didn't believe how powerful that the Mexican cartels were get, becoming, or even if they existed. They would say, well, these are old weed runners, and these are old anything for a buck smugglers. And I go, no, you don't understand. These guys are powerful. They're, they're taking over everywhere. Everywhere we turn in LA, we don't, we're not seeing Colombians, Bolivians, or Peruvians. We're seeing Mexican groups. Well, they're working for the Colombians. I go, I, I think they're getting, they're, and that's what we found out is they were, they literally were buying wholesale dope from them and cutting, them, sorry, and cutting mm-hmm. them completely out of it. Cutting them completely out of it. They know that this was their dope. This was their this was their trafficking organization. This was their network. And in a few, few right. years later, we realized, holy crap, they've taken over much of the United States. And I will never forget talking to Derek years later. So I get a phone call. I'm now a supervisor in Newark, New Jersey. And I get a call from DEA headquarters. Says, hey, somebody's on from DEA headquarters. Some monkey, I think it was whoever the chief of domestic operations was at the time, says, you need to come to a meeting. I said, come to a meeting with them. What are you talking about? He said the administrator, who was constant at the time, is not satisfied with the response that he's getting from people in headquarters because he doesn't believe they still know what the hell's going on with the Colombian or the uh, Mexicans. So you better get you're gonna get mm-hmm. your ass up here and brief on this thing. I'm like, okay. So you go to this, you know, go to this meeting down at the command center. Now I'm a little bit settled. Now I'm, you know, been working in Newark for a year or so. And so it's come time for me and, and guys are saying shit, and I'm going, that's that's not how it's happening. What are you talking? What are you? Mm-hmm. And now you're you're talking to people that listen in my in my military DEA time. I'm not I'm not trying to be you know fuck you guy. I'm not I'm just sir. I'm not too sure that that. Here's what we found out. This well, how do you know that? Well, because they all talk to us. Well, how do you know that? Well, mm-hmm. Because we verified it with these numbers. Well, how do you know it's coming from them? Well, because you know this operation that we have can tell you where the kilos are coming from. And so people were still kind of speculating what the hell was going on in you know in in life. And then SOD comes online. You know, SOD starts to come online, and now, now the, the pictures really become. They realize, holy crap, this is how powerful this order, these organizations have become. Not only that, how yeah. you know, at the time the, the the you know the Colombians here in the United States very rarely uh, you you didn't see a whole lot of violence in them, but from the Mexican traffickers, if you weren't holding up your end of the bargain, you were dying. You know. Did, uh, so have you seen uh, Narcos Mexico? I haven't. No, 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 I haven't. They portray, because they make reference to your seizure. Uh, I think it's in towards the end of season two, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, uh, they were showing that everything was being run by Miguel Felix Gallardo yeah. back yeah, then. Yeah, that's, that's that is the name. And here's the deal. So Gallardo, thank you for doing that. It struck my mind. Gallardo is, so Gallardo is, was related to Tapia Ponce, who was the border customs guy, their his daughters married. It's all it was all a familial thing. They're all married into each other at the time, mm. and it was Gallardo. And thank you for saying that because I got yeah. No, no, no. It's yeah. And Munoz Rafael Munoz Talavera was the main guy dealing with Gallardo at the time. Well, Tapia and, and winds up not Tapia uh, Munoz Talavera winds up going to jail for for something other than what we had on him, and then a handful of years later. 
got some, got out, got some work done on his face. And then he's walking around and he gets a bullet in his head. They were done with him. So yeah, that, that plastic surgery that doesn't didn't help, help so much with you know, that. Didn't help at all. <laughs> but it, it, it really it kind of cemented in how much dope was coming into. I remember when I went up. Uh, by the time I got up back to headquarters, when I was banned, asked to come in. They were they were asking me. So I said, "Do you you realize after the LA seizure?" And I I counted. I went and brought up a bunch of seizures across the country, which were huge seizures, both in terms of the customs. Uh, New York and everything else. And in, in a three month period, the United States had seized like 45 tons of cocaine in our country. I said, you realize by springtime, the price never, nothing dropped, nothing went down, you know, cause we're yeah. so galvanized. Like we were using criminal trafficking, you know, conditions like they were boardroom conditions for widgets. I'm like, well, why are you right. people that didn't go? And people are arguing that I go, do you, do you know what the overhead is? The overhead is body bags and bullets, you, you know, and, mm-hmm. and one of the things we learned, well, these guys are, they're using guys to, they're using guys to, to put them on boats and bring up, I go, yeah, they're promising all these guys tens of thousands of dollars and they're not coming through. Everybody's owed something. Oh yeah. But we got to use, we got to use business uh, uh, mentality for criminal activity. And every time we do that, we go, something doesn't make sense. Yeah. You dumbass. Cause they're criminals. Yeah. These aren't legal yeah, business. You know, people, when you, people say, oh, well, Pablo Escobar, if he'd have been a legitimate businessman, he'd have been extremely successful. He'd have been just as expensive, no, if he's successful. No, a goddamn criminal who's killing people. Anybody who, who throws right. a nine-year-old on a vat of acid, we don't – like somebody right. tried arguing with me that, Murph. Listen to this. And, and I said, you know, the difference is, is, is Sears and Macy's don't have these meetings and they kill off each other. That's not how it works. Right. You know, this is fear right. and intimidation. Yeah. But pe- I, even people in our – well, uh, let me – let me modify that. During the time people in our business and our profession were trying to say that. I'm like, what the hell's right. wrong with you? This doesn't make right. sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it's like you used to get the uh, the drug, uh, annual drug assessments, yeah. you know, telling you how many hectares are. So now there's only this many kilos yeah, in the world. Gonna... And you seize more than that by the end of the year. It's like, where are you coming up I with this? Know, have, you, have you actually gone out and seen coca leaves in a hectare, in a field <laughs> in just... another country? Oh, no. I, I sit here in my no, I got room. I got pictures. It's good. I got pixels. Pixels. These pixels tell me yeah. what they are. But, I mean, it really, it really kind of cemented how much dope was coming into the country. It really kind of cemented. The problem that we had is substance abuse in the country. Where we were to where we are today is is really there's a big you know kind of a big difference. Even though we have this opioid crisis today, and and I, I don't want to get off track, but I, I keep coming back to a lot of that has to do with our willingness to keep legalizing fucking weed and shit. So, but as long as we keep doing absolutely, that, absolutely, brother, you know, we keep doing that. We're going to keep having issues. But getting get back to the big cases, yeah. So that's that's how that that happened. Unfortunately, at the time. Um, uh, we should have shut down, you know, the leadership should have shut down the whole division to kind of work that kind of stuff, but that's not, you know, that wasn't the mentality at the time. So I'm not, it's easy to look back, right? It's easy to look back right. at 20, you know, uh, so Hindsight's yeah, you know, you just can't do it. We, we did some great work. We learned a great deal. Um, uh, I, it, it's just the way things, you know, kind of were at the time. Uh, what, well, you know, and I, and I just want to reiterate a little bit here cause I want to make sure the, the uh, our listeners understand exactly the significance of what you did. You changed the whole philosophy of the way. I mean, you brought it up to date. What you did, you went that you were changing. You just discovered it and brought it up to date. That we no longer have the major route coming no, through that's, South Florida yeah. because we had the South Florida Task Force. You had the military out there with their 
big yeah. balloons with yeah. radars over the, over the horizon. You had the P3s up running, you know, and they put a nice dent in that. But like you said, like Morgan said, you know, they, they relocated their efforts up through Mexico. The Mexicans were smart enough to realize how to do yeah. this and make a profit and how to corrupt and people. And they used their, exi use their existing uh, um, routes. Exactly. So when I got yeah, because they were already smoking buttload of weed up so in the United when States. So when I get asked that, you know, about South Florida and all this other stuff, I said, look, there's still dope coming in there. But I'm telling I would say, I'm telling you, the majority of the cocaine coming in from the country is coming across the southwest border. It's being staged out here, out west, and being sent back mm -hmm. to places across the, you know, across, you know, across the United States. And so you get a lot and of I weird. I think it's still like that yeah, today. you get a lot of weird looks and people, oh, I don't know about that. I go, okay. Let me go back to getting trucks. I mean, if you, I don't care if you don't believe it. I, I don't give a rat's ass to be at the time when you're that you're young. I, fine, make shit up. I don't. You're care. putting dope on the table. Yeah. So when you say table. what's your evidence, I said, well, well, I'll show you the dope and I'll show you the bad guys and stuff. But again, yeah. What's your evidence? Yeah, oh, good I, lord. You know, you don't want to. Yeah. You, it's it's like I'm, I'm. There's a couple of there's a couple of places out there on social media where guys are retired for 15 years and are still complaining about the, yeah, I, I never want to be that guy. You know what I mean? I, I'm with you, brother. I, I love this you. outfit. Um, I, we, I lived through some stuff. Everybody does. I mean, Morgan, even through the police department, right? You look back and go, Jesus, I mean, it's amazing. We got this far. And when you look back on it, it's just the way it is, man. It, if you mature on it and we did as an agency, we, we learned from it and we got men and women in positions that said, wait, we got to, you know, we got to look beyond that. We got to look, look at, and, and so nothing's perfect, um, but we still have young men and women or who, who, like I said, are, you know, they're dedicating hey, their man, life. Let's go, let's go out there and get bad guys. Let's take dope off the street and put bad people yep. in jail, man. So, you know what, you've probably experienced this too, Jimmy, where Javier and I get calls from media outlets all the time, especially once you talk to them, they think you're their best friend now. They think they can continually recall you and they want you to give blurbs about what's going on in the drug and the drug market. Yeah. And I tell them, we're not going to talk about this. You need to talk to the experts, yeah. go to DEA headquarters. Yeah. I'll give you the phone number, 202-307-1000. I retired in 2013. I've been retired almost nine years now. I'm not the expert yeah. anymore. And plus, a lot of times they're trying to kick us in the, in the friggin', you know, in the billions, you know, to make a point of something. And I, I there was a guy out of Virginia who worked for uh, USA Today. And I talked to him a couple of times years ago. And the second time I talked to him, came out in the papers, and it was like I was beating up DEA, and I had to call because I was still on the job. I called. This is bullshit, and I never answered his call after that. So now you son right, of a bitch. Right, right. But anyway, we we, well, we learned a lot from that case, and and then we we continued out in L.A. Hey, well, Jimmy, before let's not close down this case yet. We're going to move on to what you're working on now, and a couple other things. But let's get some resolution of this case. So tell us, um, by the time you got done making this case. Did it lead to other things? And also, um, how many people ended up getting indicted, ended up going to jail? Give us the yeah, aftermath I, of, of what happened Well, here. the entire family, because it was a family affair, the principal guys that we arrested were all married to the Tapia family. So I want to say one, two, three, four, five, six, I think seven or eight, and a couple of guys in Mexico. I don't, I don't know if they're still in jail, but we took the entire family off. Um, we, we never got the... Uh, we never, from this case, we were not, a, and in El Paso, who did the follow-up, who did a great job, wound up getting the accountant and a few other people. So they really, they wow. they did a great, and that accountant rolled. You always got to go after was, the accountant. And, and, they yeah, know baby. where the money and the bodies and are buried. And spoken to that yep. guy, you know, having spoken to that guy, he he knew, he basically knew that the other guys running the show were, he said, oh, they were stupid. He was a lot smarter, and he was looking to take over, but he he was the accountant. 
and so he was the guy that that had all was doing all the ledgers and so we got we got the chance so now i got i got all these ledgers and i'm going just kind of so i am running numbers so we so let's say we got 12 13 people with el paso another five or six you're still working we did this thing for six years so i'm looking at these and i'm running everything through our databases every number that was on everything and i get this one hit out of south florida one one hit and i see a case and there's a guy named dave bora who's who's doing something so i call down there i say i need to speak to dave bora i say hey dave jimmy capra captain america I said, we did this case up here. I got A, B, C, D, and I says, I keep getting this number. And before I could spit it out, I said, this is, they go by El Doctor. He goes, that's Willie Falcone and Sal Magluta's operation. I said, what? Who, wow. who are they? He goes, that's the cocaine cowboys. Are, that's what Tony Montana was, was about. I said, what are you talking about? Scarface. He goes, yeah, he's the biggest dope dealers for years down here and across the country. I said, well, this is what we got. I got these. I've got these ledgers. I got this, that, and the other thing. He said, Jimmy, he said, we're, in, we're in the process of prosecuting people. But we're trying to get Willie and Sal. It's like going after, um, who's that bad guy in the in the 20s that we got him on IRS violations? That's what they were looking well, at. Al Capone. Al Capone. <clears throat> he didn't go to jail for murder. No. He went to jail because you learned the one lesson. It's not illegal to avoid taxes. It's just illegal to evade taxes. And that's why Al Capone went to the most famous prison of all. So, uh. So I, I go to South, I, so I, I, I talk, now I'm talking to, he's a walking, talking uh, encyclopedia about all things, these people. Then I hook up with, the, with Jane Engelstadt, another agent who's, these, they're, they're like doing stuff by themselves. I'm like, good God in heaven. So we start dealing with, I go down there, they have ledgers. I match our ledgers up with their ledgers with Willie and Sal. I'm like, this is incredible. This is, holy crap. So they're excited. They're the the prosecutor down there. Again, I'm sorry. It was a great guy. He says, "Okay, we're going to go to trial. We're going to use these ledgers." I I I um I'm, I'm you know we're, we're kind of looking at this stuff. And he has a couple of guys that that are rolling. So now get this. Now we go from our transporters now to guys that are actually drug traffickers in the United States, moving, making money. They're buying from those guys. They have a network of people selling dope all over the country. Now we're now they're going after them now. So I am now the guy that's 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 hopefully going to help them do that. And so he has a couple of guys that are rolled. They're all big money guys that work for the organization. So he says, "Hey, listen, I got this guy who's an informant." He said, "We're gonna, you know, we got to get scheduled to have you come down and you can talk to him and everything." I said, "Great." So I go down, and and what was happening beforehand? I think it was a year earlier. William Sal is there putting. As they're getting witnesses, Willie and Sal are killing people. They're killing federal, they're killing mm-hmm. DEA witnesses. Yeah. So I get a call because this guy's going to roll. He wants to roll. So I get down there. I forget what hotel I was staying with. It doesn't matter. I'm going to meet with Dave for a couple of beers and everything. And I'm waiting, waiting. He's not showing up. So he comes in. I see him and, and he's walking fast towards me. We're supposed to meet this guy the next morning. I said, and looking at him, he's got this concerned look at him. He says, He's, I said, hey, what's up? He goes, they just whacked, got the guy's name, Benny, or something. He said, they just whacked him. I said, what do you mean they just whacked him? I must have found out we we're going to talk to him. He says, his dad got a phone call from the cops. They was on the phone. They put a bullet in his head, and then I killed his brother. I'm like, holy shit. Holy wow. crap. What the hell is going on? Mm. And so they finally did. They, they finally were able to uh, 
uh, go to trial on these guys. And then they had guys like Roy Black and everything as their defense attorneys. And and uh, I, I was on the stand for maybe 45 minutes and, and literally didn't get a whole lot in. But I think they still grabbed the guy. So that that was, was pretty neat to see that kind of connection there from the transporters, you know, to the actual traffickers in the United States, that kind of impact that was going on there. But uh, violent. Well, you know, that's that's one of the new series that's out. Well, it's not real. It's I guess in the past year on Netflix, the Cocaine Cowboys. I think it's four episodes, yeah. and it's about uh, Falcone and Magruder. Well, Magruder, Dave Bohr and Jane Agelstadter, they're, I mean, and that prosecutor down there, that they, uh, they lived, breathed. There wasn't anything that I yeah. talked to them about that they didn't know. I was kind of guessing. They go, "No, here's it's like holy mackerel, man! You guys better write this crap down." Well, you you watch that series, and and I'll be honest with you, I think Netflix kind of glamorized, yeah. it, you know these these. No, murders. they did. We were we were looking at reviewing it for the Narcometer, but we decided that you know with a series that made it too tough. But they did. They glamorized it. They're in their speedboats. They're nice guys. They do yeah. this. Well, they that's do how that. dipshit got no. caught. And so, so an LA County yeah. sheriff flaunting his. He looked wealth. on and they had the speedboat yeah. races, and he looked and he said, "That's Willie Falcone." They, they were they were at a warrant out for him. That's yeah. Willie Falcone, wow. and he started making phone calls. And sure as shit, he was out there. Racing speedboats. What a dumbass. They got got what they deserved there. Yeah, but you know, it kind of goes to your point real quickly, too. A lot of people made that mistake thinking, well, if Pablo had just done this or if these guys had just did No. What worked for them was because they had – they killed people. They could enforce yeah. things, you know, they, they were brutal. And and the other thing, too, that's just amazing, a lot of folks think, oh, these guys must be smart to be able to avoid the cops and do stuff. Now, you know what they were? They're one of those people, when you hire in a sea of uh, a lot of other dope traffickers, you know, something has to happen for you to come up to where you where you become obvious. And with Falcone and Magluta, it was freaking obvious what they were doing. They're, they're getting their names on TV. They're showing speedboats. I mean, they did everything possible to make sure people notice them. It was the yeah. ego that brings always, a lot of these people down. Always, and the other thing is they get loyalty from people because you got guys who are not making any money and you give them a thousand bucks a week and they're like, I'll do anything for you. It's kind of, as uh, you absolutely. Well know, uh, Murph down in South America, people said, oh, I don't understand people. I said, look at, you got a guy that's making two pesos a friggin' month, and a guy comes along and says, "I'll give you a thousand pesos for the." They'll do anything, you know. They'll, You're gonna be loyal so what, to him. What are you gonna do? You got a dirt farm. You got to feed your family. And all. I'm not. I'm not talking about the ethical positioning. I'm just talking about living life. You know, that's right. that's what you're up against. I mean, that kind of stuff is what you're up right. against. So, um, and people don't understand that. They they look at it through our eyes and go, you know, in that during that time frame, if you remember, we. Uh, especially with Colombia, because again, corruption is the linchpin. So if you can corrupt people, you can, you know, and, and the whole thing with uh, um, the traffickers down there, you lived it, is that's the way they got things done. They were able to corrupt political officials, people here, everything else like right. that with money. And then if you didn't do the right thing, you and your family were killed, you know, kind of killed off, not kind of, but um, that's just the way, right. you know, it happened. But, but, well, to, but to, I remember saying we could never work with the Colombians. We we can't we can't work with them. And then fast forward years later, they're like the premier counter narcotics guys yeah. in the country. And when I went down down to visit as the chief of ops, I never forget they were getting ready to go to friggin' North Africa to to train them for best practices. And yeah. amazing, yeah. Uh, just what it's amazing thing. And I, part of that, I, well, again, you, I'm talking to the expert, but. I think the, the Colombian people had enough. Um, the political party had the will to do what they did. And, the, the, you know, that agency said, hey, we got to, we're getting too many men. They still get people killed. Yeah. 
Well, just so you know, I mean, Javier Pena and I are the ones that, that made them what they are today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so, but you know That's what? my story so, and I'm sticking to it. The other thing, uh, to be honest with you, because of that, I think we, we got, we started becoming, I think, a little bit more ballsy about how to do investigations. We said, you know what, let's, let's not just do, you know, the buy busts are important, first of all. I don't, I don't, I think they're important. I mean, they're important when you can do them. But but they're uh, just but they're a, a tool, tool among if many you can, tools that you if have. You can do that, yeah. but, yes. but um, you use that to get to the next thing and all. That doesn't happen all the time. And it's a gateway. Yeah, it's you know, like yourself, you haven't done. I can t- I can tell you how many times on two fingers I did undercover, and I'm terrible. I was terrible at it. You know, I flashed sixty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars in a in a hotel. Uh, bar lobby and i think it was a half in the bag at the time hey, there you go you know i think i was big shot <laughs> yeah but hey, you know that, part of your perfect. problem jimmy was you kept wearing the captain america yeah. shirt you know and carrying but, around you know, you know but and you had your two by two yeah, pouch on exactly but back then it was the fanny pack <laughs> fanny pack with the five yeah. shot <laughs> oh yeah so, oh yeah nothing says undercover cop like wearing yeah. a fanny pack oh but my we god we used to say hey you know you know really it did for a lot of us it said hey let's let's not be so you start learning again you you realize hey Maybe we can do this, and and bosses started going, hey, maybe you know we should do this, and so you start getting control of deliveries, and you're going, hey man, let's see how far we can take this, and people would say, wait a minute, well you know you're what, put dope in a car, and you're going to give it to the yeah. bad guy, yeah, and we're yeah. going to follow him, and we're going to do this, and so which which we started doing that, and we started being successful, and the reason we were successful, not because anything independent, is because we worked with some phenomenal cops and task force yes. and other agencies that said, Hey, yeah, we'll that's jump right. on a bandwagon with you. What do you need? I mean, that's, and that's, then, and as technology uh, progressed, we were, you know, we were able to use technology to help yeah, protect no, that. So, so that led to, you know, that started leading to, at least in LA, finally, to be honest with you, people started waking up and going, the hell's going on out there in Los Angeles. You know, that's why when mm-hmm. I, by the time I got to Newark, you're getting called back and said, Hey, can you tell us what's, what's going on out there? And I'm, I'm being facetious, not just me, but Intel people and everybody else, I think, I think, I think the three-hour time difference. Honest to God, I, I swore by it. I said, "Think that that's it, or we're not doing the job we should be of getting that information to decision makers." That's part of it too. But, but you know something too. It's it's one of those things you think about it again. Just thinking logically, how else are you going to get that much dope into LA unless it either comes by yeah. truck? comes by aircraft, comes by ship, because you don't, you cannot have a convoy of cars big enough to carry the amount of dope it takes to feed the needs no. of LA. Cause they'd be getting after pretty soon they'd be getting, t- I mean, you're going to get some loads, but the big loads, like you talk about, they got to be coming in by bigger forms of transport and trucks are a natural way. No, yeah. hundred percent. You know, it's funny because all this led to, um, all, all this led to, like I said, all, when you're learning all these things, you start going, and then you realize, hey, we have talented men and women. We, I mean, we really mm-hmm. do. We have, we have men and women who are risk. I mean, we, every operation is a risk inherently. But I mean, saying, you know, because you look at, you know, right uh, rewards and what I'm going to get out of it versus this. And so we started doing these some of these controlled deliveries out there. The people said, oh, that's a little bit dangerous. No, let's let's take it, and it wind up going into. We did a case, which is, as far as I know, still the largest controlled delivery on record of five tons of cocaine coming up in the border. And, and uh, I'll never, never forget. Mike Bansmer was a GS. I was now in a different group. It was years later. And, and he calls and he, and he basically says, Hey, they got a, a, an undercover kid from Massachusetts is doing a case. Supposedly going to bring five tons of cocaine up. 
I said, oh, and this is so, so this is what's weird by that time. So I went, oh, great. Is it, you know, great. So I talked to this kid Ferguson out of, and he's been dealing with a good informant. Anyway, long and short of it is, this is the first thing you do now. Now you know, okay, there's five tons supposedly coming up. Contact all your state, local, you know, sergeants say, this is what we got. And so, um, it, it, honestly, that's, it's, you just call everybody. And here's the, here's the good thing. But now you've established not just me, but DEA established a reputation amongst our state and local partners that said, hey, we're on board. Let's go. And so you have this meeting. So you meet with this kid and he says, I met with these guys. I told him we got this network. They're going to bring five tons across the border. Uh, we're going to take it. We're going to bring it to L.A. and we're going to deliver it to them. And they're going to pay me two million dollars. So me, again, because I'm a I'm chucklehead and I go, OK, let's do that. So I get I get all these teams together. Got about. I don't know what to initially, probably initially about 70 or 80 cops of teams have a meeting. And I go, so got all the sergeants there. I said, this is what's going to happen. So um, the undercover starts getting a phone call from a pay phone. So we log, this is, again, this is 101. Remember, pagers. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm working with good cops. This is not just my idea. These are guys, we're sitting together. Let's get a pager, got a pager. Where's that, where's that? Run it. It's that phone phone booth down in the corner of walk and don't walk. Put a team there. Okay, put that. Put those guys there. Can't find the guy. The next day, call some two others. We put a team on three different phone booths. And, you know, little, and we just wait. He gets a call. Gets a call from one of the ones that we got a team on. They they got him. There's no dope yet, but it's, it's supposedly coming. They put that guy down in two different locations out Riverside. Calls from another place. By the time we were done, by the time the dope got here. We had identified six locations ready just because of police work, just because of yeah. and sat guys, sat teams on there. Said, okay, they got so many teams. We had they get the dope comes across the border. It comes up. So uh, don't don't sugar or don't gloss past that part. Tell us how the dope came across. What was it coming in? <clears throat> how had they hidden it? And what arrangements it, did you make for it the, to get successfully the, through the, customs? The undercover did most of the work, and his team out of uh, uh, Massachusetts did most of the work with. Um, it was customs back then still customs back then to had a gate. We, we told them, they told them we had a corrupt guy and he was going to let got guns. So they, I forget how many different um, vans at different times came across, a, you know, a different area. And then they took it to a place and they loaded it all in like one box truck or something. I forget, or one vehicle, literally five, 5,000 kilos in one area. And they, they drove it out here. I, you know, we drove it out. And once it got here, we put like three or four trackers on it and we waited. Yep. And by then we had six locations. But so we, you had to coordinate with customs. You had to get approval from everybody and their brother. But 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 uh, um, Ferguson is there. I, I think it was like Mike Ferguson, not not the Mike we know and her son. He's the one who put it all together. Amazing. And so he would he would meet. So the, the bad guys called him and said, OK, we want our dope. And he said. Talk about balls. He told him, he said, no, I'm not, no, you, you owe me $2 million and I'm not giving you a dime until you get to, all right, all right. They show up in a Toyota with $2 million in the trunk. So now we could have just went home because we got 5,000 kilos and $2 million. We could have just went home. We just said, fuck it, let's go home. So I had a command post um, set up in this hotel. So, okay, we're going to deliver tomorrow. We moved it. I called, I, call, I remember calling customs and I said, dude, we need, I uh, can't get a guy's name, terrific guy. And uh, I, I got to tell you, let me go back because I know we, we joke a lot. We've all had issues with 
I, I have been so incredibly blessed and fortunate working with men and women from different agencies. I never, well, there's always a rub somewhere. We all got them. You know, I probably pissed guys off as well, but I got to tell you, overall, the people that I worked with were all guys and guys were great. And you call them up and say, hey, can you help me with this? There's a guy, Ed Ochaturina. I, I don't know if Ed's still around, but he was a senior 13 FBI guy. When we were doing that case, I realized I didn't have enough bodies. I called Ed. Ed, this is what I got. Freaking guy gets two teams of FBI agents to come out to help us out. It's unheard of. I mean, freaking out, what do you want them? Nice. This is what we got. So anyway, we, we, we've got 2 million. We've got 5,000 kilos of dope. Uh, now it goes into, I think it was a box truck. So, okay. Now I'm sitting in the command center, and, and the bad guy comes, takes control of dope. Now we've given the bad guy, understand this, 5,000 kilos. A bad guy's now driving this box truck, this U-Haul box truck. That has a governor on it, so it can't go past 55. He gets out on I-10 <laughs> and takes off. Behind him is a team of 15 friggin' uh, um, uh, narcs behind him with a helicopter uh -huh. at 2,000 feet. Behind them is another 15 with a helicopter at 3,000 or 2,500. Behind him is another 15 with a helicopter. Three helicopters, 30 guys. At the time, 200 guys on the street, close to 300. Six teams sitting Holy up on eight. So you go from having absolutely no backup and just two of you are going to take down stuff yeah. with no helicopters, and now you got yeah, the whole yeah, freaking yeah. frickin fifth fleet and the it's air greatest thing in the world, man. It's the I was the it was the only problem is is I'm in the command center, which I'm not a command center guy, but you got to be, you uh -huh. know. It's all right, listen, because you're kind of orchestrating stuff, and and these guys that are in the field, these sergeants and everything, you know, they probably forgot more than I know at the time. So. uh uh, it goes to this place. It goes to a house. It backs in, backs in. <laughs> garage door opens. There's unloading boxes. Closes it. Truck leaves. The, there's a team on the house. Goes to another location, to another location, to another location. It's just dropping dope off. And just I, I thought I was friggin', you know, Carmack the Invincible. I go, I'm telling you, he's going to take it to these places. And like when it happened, I was like, eh, I told you. I'm like, oh, please, Lord, let that happen. Make that hell of screw But now you're thinking, I got six freaking locations. First guy that comes out of garage or something, we're going to have to do this. But you got to go to the to the sergeant or the GA or whoever, the senior agent at the time says, your decision, whatever you say. So now we're getting into nighttime and it's and it's kind of, and I'm just sitting there. Now I'm starting to think, what the fuck have I done? What the hell is wrong with me? You know, because I'm thinking, uh -huh. oh, shit, we got literally 300 cops out on the street, six locations, 5,000 kilos that have now been broken up. I'm like, are you fucking nuts? I get a call from the LAPD sergeant. Uh, um, oh, my God, this guy's such an amazing guy. He calls me up. He goes, Jimmy, he goes, listen to me. He goes, my guy is, is low crawling in a, in a lemon grove. We got eyes on a house. He goes, but in the morning, it's going to be a bitch. He goes, I'm telling you right now. I said, listen, brother. I said, you, you call it. Whatever you, whatever you think. I'm not telling you. you. Whatever you think, your guys are out there. And that's how you have to be, man. These are, right, you can't, right. oh, here's what we're going to, that's how you have to be. You think you learned about it. He said, okay. Next morning at like 5.30 in the morning, my phone's going off. He goes, hey. He goes, we've got movement in the house. I said, okay. Now we are, and by the way, because of good prosecutors, us because of relationships again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We got we got search warrants for every location now. We already got search warrants for every friggin' location. He says Jimmy, he goes, we got movement. He says cars coming out. And then the next thing goes, Jimmy, they've made surveillance. He's instructed, take, go ahead, take them. 
He's like, he's throwing phones out. He's throwing phones out the window. I said, okay. They pull him over. They get some dope inside. They grab the bad guy. That's it. We got a warrant for the house. He goes, we're, we're, he calls me. He says, because this is going to be the first place. All the other places are quiet. And buddy, I'll never forget this. I still get, my stomach goes in and out. He's Jimmy. We're getting ready to hit the place. I said, all right, brother. He says, uh, be careful. Like five minutes to six, six oh three, six oh four. Fucking radios blew up. <laughs> shots fired. Shots fired. Officers down. Officers down. I'm like, oh. Now you're like, what oh. the fuck? Everything that you you feared would happen is happening. But you got to go. Yeah. And I and I remember. I I will be honest with you. It'd be nice to go. Yes, I was like Patton at the time. Inside, I'm going. What the fuck have I done? For a minute. Mm -hmm. you know, what what the hell? You, was your your ego? You thought you could do you, for a second, and then and then what happens is by then you got time on. You got to push all that aside. Say, okay, what do we got? So uh, what happens is you would find it, and then like ten minutes later, when they get inside the house, um, what what you had to call out to everybody, and you go because we had SWAT on standby, had everybody on standby. In every location, we would find out was all heavy weapons. I mean, heavy heavy weapons, tripods, guns. 308s, magazine, every place had heavy weapons. And what happened was, I keep forgetting the guy's name is a sergeant from LAPD, friggin' balls the size of elephants. They go to hit the door. Some of the guys from CNET were with him. Knock on the door. They got a search warrant, six o'clock in the morning. Boom, boom, boom. Police open the door. He says, I can hear a guy inside Spanish yelling, We're coming, we're coming. Sorry. It's big, big Dutch doors in the front. Big. And then he said it was like 30 seconds. I mean, my stomach went to flip. He said, I fucked up. Let's hit the door. So they hit the door and they breach it. And the detective who was in the lead steps through to that, you know, the deadly funnel there, steps through. Mm -hmm. And their guy was buttoned up behind a wall, 10, 5, 8, 10 feet away, just opened up with the AK-47. Ka-choom, ka-choom, ka-choom. So the detective goes down. Everybody in the front was stacked in the front, is, is trying to get as low as they can. And this guy is just firing through, just crazy. So the the sergeant, uh, Tony Alvarez, that's his name. Tony Alvarez sees this guy go down. So and me, just me, and he'd been in a couple of friggin' combat shootings before. So he he sees the guys literally behind a wall in the tactical position. So Tony's got his friggin' little nine millimeter. He says to me, he said, I just start friggin' opening up, and then I shoot through the wall. He hits him. He literally hits him and drops the guy. He's alive. The detective was never hit who went down, but he has, he literally has flash burns on his face from the AK fire. That's, think wow. about that. So by the grace of God, when the homicide guys got out, anyway, so and one guy did a, uh, a Miami Vice thing, went crashing through a window out the back. They were able to grab him. Um, they got the dope there. We hit every place, helicopters from the SWAT teams running out. We got all our dope back, all our dope back. I don't know how many guns, how much money. And all the good guys got to go home that night. I mean, that, that night. That, that was about what yeah. I was about to ask you. Um, other than the flash burns by that detective's face, who was the point? You know, and that's like you say, that's the worst place to be is the point going in through that, what they call the yeah. fatal funnel. It's that deadly funnel. You go in through an area. Uh -huh. And that 30 seconds, basically what you're saying, gave them time yeah. to set up, yeah, right? Yeah, no, that's the whole thing. And, 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 and Tony, to his... So when people wonder why sometimes you ask for no-knock yeah. warrants, it's for exactly yeah. stuff uh -huh. like this. It's because... 
it doesn't take that long for somebody to set up no. with a weapon and know that you're coming in through the and front door. And what we would find out later is, you know, they, they drugged this guy out. Tony was telling me, because Tony spoke Spanish, and he said, uh, I was talking to the guy, and the guy says, hey, listen. He goes, and, and the guy had been shot before. He's a former Mexican fed. And he goes, hey, you did what you had to do. I, had, I did what I had to do, basically. And the idea was, if he could wound as many people up front, they were going to be able to get away and get, and get out of yeah. there. But by the grace of God, we got our, all our dope back, and... and uh, all the good guys went home, and it was kind of so. Amazing. Just the one bad guy was that. So the Every, guy that uh, your buddy shot was the former yeah, Mexican, yeah, former fed. Mexican fed, and everything. But you know, amazingly talented, um, dope cops and agents, and from from that's those are the guys that and gals that make that this kind of stuff happen. And they, you know, yep. they could have told you, "Hey, go pound sand. We're not going to do that." But they they come out, they put their lives on the line, and because they trust you, they say, "Hey, Jimmy, we'll come out. What do you want?" You know, and and so. I, I, it's so, you know, my, so I have, I have sons now that are on the job. I got two of my boys who are federal agents in two different agencies. And he's telling them all the time, let me tell you something. You're, you, you would be dumb if, as you get settled and as you learn a job, not to connect with the men and women in the police departments around there. So never forget their city, their towns and, and uh, connect with them and connect with them. You'll be lifelong Absolutely. friends. Absolutely. They want the same thing. They want, you know, they they want to put bad guys in jail and take dope off their streets. And, you know, that's, uh, there's I've always been in some, whether it's ad hoc task force or something else, and it's always proven to be great. Not to take anything away from DEA, but. No, right. no, but let me tell you, as a recipient of that, as a detective, when we were working stuff with our local DEA task force, they'd bring guys in. I don't know if you know, know the name Troy Derby uh, Troy, at all. Troy worked for me. He was my, my executive no. assistant for a while. He was yeah, your was horse holder. Horse. I love him. And then Troy, we were we lived in the same complex out in, in Virginia, and and I don't I, you know I can do a lot of things at home, but there's some shit I just can't do. But Troy is like a master carpenter. So I, I used to have him over my house. Hey, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? So Troy was such a good guy. He was out of Wichita yeah. at the time, out of the what, what you might call was it the resident yeah, agency yeah, or yeah. the, uh, and he and let me tell you what. You, you, we were blessed because we had good relationships yeah. with all the feds. With ATF would come out. We used to have a two-man RA, then it was a one-man RA for the FBI. Um, but every one of those guys was good <sighs> people. We had back in the day when it was still INS. We had a two-man uh, RA for INS. You know, they later eliminated it. But Troy would come out, and we were working some good-sized cases, good-sized seizures. And uh, he would come out, and he, you know. We figured out the rules because you could not – DEA could not give us NATIS reports, which is I think was the Narcotics yeah. and Dangerous Drugs Information System. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could not give us the report, but what he could do is he could lay it on the table and said, copy what you want. So it then became our yeah. information, and we yeah, would share def- information back with defense him. Defense attorneys he, could have those, your, but we couldn't give them to our partners. Amazing. Uh, what yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the here's the best part, though. Is that, you know, when we were working this stuff, um, we'd share information, we'd share information back and forth. Um, we never had we never had an issue with these guys because nobody nobody was running to make a press yeah. release. Nobody was saying, hey, it was us. We had great working relationships. And but to your point though, too, we knew the yeah. people, we knew the relationships. They might have a name, but we knew the relationship between that name and businesses in town and everything yeah. else. And so we'd bring the guys with the resources. And let me tell you, one of the best things I got to do would be a part of, we're doing a flash. You know, I got to be my one UC role one time like you. I, I sucked it undercover. I was the banker. We go to a bank. 
we've got a half a million dollars in cash, you know, in a in a safe deposit box. I got to be the guy that got to go open it up, and it was all money, yeah. you know, from seizures, courtesy of <laughs> DEA. And it was like this. I'm going. This is yeah. fun. Well, man. you know what? The, oh. And you, so when I go from there, when I go from Los Angeles, having that kind of relationships with people, you know, men and women across police departments and across agencies. I get to Newark, New Jersey as a supervisor. Never forget it. Good, hardworking group of, of uh, individuals. And I'm not there for a couple of days. So I grab a couple of guys and say, hey, who do we work with? And they look at me like I have three heads. What are you talking about? Well, who do we work with? State police? Who, who Who's our contacts? Never forget. This guy looks at me and goes, we don't work with anybody. So what are you talking about? He goes, I said, what do you mean we don't work with anybody? He goes, nobody likes us. <laughs> What do you mean nobody likes us? No, nobody. They, they hate us. They hate DEA. <laughs> they haven't met Jimmy Kepper yet. I'm so Captain America. Were, what we found out right. is there there was a, you know, especially state police, which was is a great, you know, Massachusetts, uh, uh, Jersey State Police, amazing uh, group of guys and gals, interdiction, narcotics guys and stuff. And and later on in, down the road, I wind up meeting who would become the colonel uh, um, out there. I forget it. He's got his, he's got his PhD through... City University of New York from all DEA cases is amazing because I got to read his dissertation. But what we would find out is some of the guys on the state police who are now lieutenants and captains didn't want anything to do with DEA because of a pissing match they had 15 years earlier. And I'm like, yeah, D- didn't anybody call and say, hey, look, we're sorry about that, but can we move beyond that? So, we, I mean, we finally did start working with, you know, men and women. But what I'm, what I'm getting to is you, you ruin a relationship like that. You wind up impacting everything you're doing. And it, and it may be juvenile, you know, it's kind of juvenile saying guys or gals holding that over you, but, but that's the importance of it. And I'm not saying get run over or kissing anybody's butt, but there's a bigger picture at hand. You know, there, there I mean, there is, and there is a time to tell somebody, Absolutely. and I'm sorry, we're not, I'm not working with you. I mean, there is a time to do that, but yeah, a lot of stuff was like from petty, petty stuff, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, I'll be honest with you, it got to the point, a lot of the offices you work out of, you'd rather work with the state and local guys than you do. Oh, God, man, yeah. Um, no, that's true. Yeah, the state and local guys, they'll come out any time of the day or night, Saturday, Sunday, yeah. it doesn't matter, where the feds are like, that's a weekend, Actually, man. there was a division like that that would always, they they weren't even in the in the chain of where dope was going to, but for some reason, we get a call, yeah, we think we got this dope's going to come here. I go, it's not coming here. Well, my ASAC's telling me to come down and we're going to do A, B, and C. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? the hell out of here but it is what it is you know everybody's got a piece of it <laughs> but again when you when i look back i go i got nothing but good good memories and by the grace yeah. of god yeah but you you, you bring up the whole problem and i think it's it's less of an issue now because we've gotten better at sharing information especially uh you know after 9-11 where we realize we got to we got to do a better job of sharing information yeah. all over the place but uh, but i tell you I, I i remember this one cartoon and it came out of doonesbury but it, it tells you it was about the Middle East, but I looked at it and said, it's kind of like law enforcement too, just exactly what you're talking about. You got Duke, the CIA guy there, and he's talking to Ahmed or, you know, the, the character. And he says, hey, how come you hate this guy? How come you want to kill him? He said, well, because 2000 years ago, his cousin yeah, killed my yeah. cousin. Yeah. And we're still harboring yeah. these. Yeah, it's petty. I mean, well, they, you know, that may not be petty, but I mean, it is petty. But it's it, kind of almost like generational but, but shit. Fortunately, that's a yeah. small, yeah, fortunately, that's a small thing. And what happens is these guys age out. Um, they get, they get moved somewhere else. And pretty soon, you know, you've got a new crop of people that come in that like you, you know, one of the best things probably to happen to LA is to have 70% of all the people out there be new agents who don't have that baggage, who don't know what it's like and want to make, just want to make cases. Because when I, I often say that, I said, I I think that our, the, our 
what most people would consider our success in LA as a whole, not just our group, but other groups who are working dynamic, great stuff from money loan and everything. I, th- I think you're right. A guy's like, okay, we can do that. Hey, let's, let's talk to so-and-so or, Hey, or somebody mm-hmm. would say, Hey, do you, do you have, you know, somebody from Riverside PD or uh, do you know somebody from, Oh, you know, uh, B and E or something like that. Yeah, call this guy. He's a great guy or she's a good. And, and it's just the way you should be getting things done. It's not perfect. Right. But by God, man, at the end of the day, you go, what the hell are we doing? Why are we fighting? And we're all on the same I'll team. You, I you will know, tell you this. We're all fighting the bad guys. One of the things that I learned in Silmar, with that, with that money, seizure money makes the best of friends and the worst of enemies. So let me give you a quick snapshot yeah. of what I mean. And it does, because every department has politics. I mean, everybody. So here we got close to, you know, $13 million in cash, and we're going to divvy it up. And so, and, now, and of course, you remember, you're the guy. I mean, all the DAGs um, come into you and with their, but I've already talked to all the PDs and, and, and got their chiefs to say, here's what we're going to put in for. I'm like, okay, that's fine. And I got to be honest with you back then, I had a supervisor, you, 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 you take care of it. It's okay. So like we're talking about one of, one of the, you know, people ask all the time, well, how, how is it that you're so successful? Not just me is this, I said, Hey, you know, I, 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 I know and I believe that the reason that we, my team, my group, and, and to be honest with you, in my walk um, as an agent or as a leader was the ability to, to establish relationships, the ability, you know, to say, listen, I, maybe, I, I, maybe I don't agree with you on a lot of different things, your politics, your, your social life. I, I don't care. I, but, it, but this is important that we, I'm able to establish these relationships of trust so that we can get things done. And, uh, and that's, that's what it's about. And I think the bigger issue is, I think sometimes we forget that men and women, especially in our profession, you know, in the law enforcement profession, it doesn't matter, is that everybody's trying to do the same thing. You know, we're trying to complete the mission. And, how, mm-hmm. you know, how do you do that? You know, recognize that, that I don't have all the tools. You know, it's like going back to the tractor trailer stuff. And you, you look at commercial vehicles and you realize, hey, who do we go to? How do we get that tool there? And then so... You, that's, you know, it becomes important. And then you yield that, you know, and it's kind of like the controlled delivery I talked about. You tell these men and women that are with you um, who are going into harm's way, right? We don't, we all right. of us think eh, it's going to be great, but you, you have to give them that. you got to say, you make that decision as you see it for your team. You don't go, okay, you come to me for, that's how shit slows down. You know right. what? Because like I said, my buddy, Bill Huffman, during the big, big cases, what do you want us to do? It's Bill, you call it. You know, or the guy at the house, you know, said, Jimmy, what do you want me to do? Said, you call it, man. You call it as you see it. I'll follow, you know, we'll, I'll follow your lead. I'm not there. And then the other thing is, you know, when we're sharing stuff, we're honest with people. We're not, you know, we're not going to say, well, I can only give you so much. You know, as I was told by my boys who are different outfits, I said, well, if you're going to share something with somebody, you share it. You know, we, we have a mechanism by which we tell people we share it, our agency. You share it. You don't give them, you know, 1% or two. Here's what I got. This is this is what I got. So you got to be willing to the, do that. I was going to say I think one of the funniest jokes I ever heard Dennis Miller talk about, and he 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 had a conversion after nine eleven. You know the comedian. Yeah. He said there are no Al Qaeda's. You know. He said yeah. you know. And but he used to joke, and it was true because when you've worked inside these environments, and you know it too, Jimmy, you're in a skiff or you got other people. 
He said the only thing the CIA, CIA and the FBI share is the letter I in their name. Yeah, and there was a time where that, that was the truth, right? But you're sitting there next to somebody to go, hey, why don't I just turn around and tell this guy, oh, no, you have to go through this cutout, and it has to go through legal, and it has to come here. Yeah. So by the time you share information that can make a difference, it's a three- or four-day journey to where you go, why can't I just turn to the guy and say, hey, you need to know this? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. You know, I had to – let me give an example – when, when I got to Dallas here, run the Dallas office, I've really, really blessed the, the men and women that I work with, not only the supervisors, but my team, the team that I work with, like it just kind of Danny Salter and Jeff Stom and, and, and others, uh, Tanya Pierce, who was my, our legal after a while. But so one of the big things that I would tell people all the time is you can pursue an excellence, not success. You, know, you, you, can, you can cheat and succeed, but pursue an excellence means you've got to be willing to reach up to the next level. You're not don't be content. And I don't mean, when I tell that, I don't mean not to be content with your life, with, you know, your family with it. I mean, don't be good. Hey, can I get better? Is there a way to get better? And how do I get better? And, uh, you know, that, so my big thing was pushing it down to our people. You're going to make decisions on the street that impact you. Not every decision you make, there's not every situation has an answer in the manual. And so one of our, one of the teams, uh, um, was doing a controlled delivery coming up. And, and it's funny because they said, hey, they're they're bringing up 800 pounds of weed. It's coming up here. I'm, Great. Yeah, go for it, man. So the kid who had it, he 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 said, I got, you know, he did all the pre-planning and everything. I didn't, I didn't have to get involved. And this is, you know, but so he did it. They did the controlled delivery. And unfortunately, there was another way out. And they they lost like 100 pounds or something of weed out of the 900-pound load. And uh, so I got a phone call. So, all right, no, no big deal. And so we'd, we would find out go downstairs and um the the it was danny salters one of his guys came into me and said, oh my god this guy feels terrible and everything I said, what do you mean he feels terrible so he makes this decision because he sees this offload so there's an informant and an undercover involved and next thing you know five cars shows up and now the supervisor saying if we hit it these guys are going to be in mortal danger let's be smart let's let them load it and then we'll go after them and unfortunately one of the cars got out so i went down and talked to the kid and he goes boss i'm so sorry i go whoa 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 wait a minute you made a decision, right? Yeah. You made a decision based on the safety and the security of your team, your men and women, the informant and the other guy, right? You made the right decision. I said, where do you think that dope's going to go? You think it's going to go to the local school? It's going to some other asshole doper's house. Don't worry about it. Like, what, what are you I, kidding me? You I bet that? you didn't tell your team either. Only cowards wear vests, right? No, no, I never. <laughs> I didn't say that either. But what I'm, what I'm, so what I'm getting to is, you know, we, 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 we want and expect our men and women who are responsible for others to make decisions on the street. And you don't want them to be afraid to make decisions, right. you know, based on, oh, the boss may not like, you got to, based on your training, your experience, the wisdom and the situation at hand, all those things go, you know, kind of go into it. Well, and you hit upon it. It's the facts on the ground. The thing that used to irritate me to no end is you'd have some, what we call a rem, a rear echelon motherfucker sitting in a desk in a chair somewhere not anywhere near a scene or anything else that's going on. And they think they've got the wisdom and the insight to tell you what to yeah. do. It's this whole fallacy people had, you know, with radios. It's like you got some commander sitting there going, well, the reason these radios have to work like this and they've got to be this because we have to be able to give shoot, don't shoot orders. And I'm going, I said, I guarantee you, if you ever worked yeah. with the SWAT team or snipers, they're not waiting for some asshole on a radio, yeah. you know, five miles away to tell them shoot or don't shoot. I mean, you, you hit upon, I think, yeah. one of the key leadership things is if you've trained the people right – You've instilled the confidence in them. Then you then you go with their decisions based yeah. on the facts on the ground. You, you you know you give them the authority to say okay do it now. It, you know if somebody screws the pe you know pooch and it's completely you got to there's accountability and everything. 
But, you know, it's kind of reminiscent of people who don't remember this. When uh, when uh, General Schwarzkopf was in charge of the first Gulf War and everything, he was he was asking all those intel people, which I would have been one of, but I wasn't. And they kept giving him information that was all wrong. And he basically said, this is bullshit. So he talked to his guys on the, you know, down the ground up front. And, the, and he was able to assess a better battle plan that way. Hmm. So like you said, Morgan, he's, he didn't talk to, he's all these wizards that are putting stuff together. He's going, hey, what does your eyes and ears tell you on the ground? What are you seeing? And so sometimes I, what I learned as I'm coming up is, yeah, we give, you know, bosses or leaders give these men and women this authority. And then as soon as something doesn't sound right, they want to, they cut their heads off. So wait a minute, man. Well, hang on a second. That's bullshit. That was, uh, you know, one of my first supervisors in DEA, he, he made a point of telling all us new guys, because there's so many new guys in the group, if you guys are right, I got your backs. Yeah. Well, if I'm right, I don't need you to have my back. Yeah. I need your, your support when I'm wrong. Yeah, we had uh, we had a supervisor before I got to um, Newark. One of the guys would tell me their former super, uh, supervisor that was there a few years earlier said, none of you are going to get in the way of my promotions and stuff. And I, I always found oh, that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, it, 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 that bothers me so much, you know, in, in, in positions and leaders. And I'm not speaking for all of DEA. There's, I was fortunate, as you were, Murph, to work with some phenomenal mm-hmm. men and women. But it starts to, you start realizing, man, we're, we, we need men and women with some wisdom and some people who care. And, you right. know, and that's, you start, start getting that into your bones and you start realizing you know, when you're developing these relationships, it, it garners so much. You, you get you get so far ahead, and then you, you got men and women calling you back because maybe they're not the, the dope experts, but they got, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the bureau's got something, and they call you up and say, hey, we got a dope connection, maybe ABC. And it doesn't happen all the time, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but maybe that's it. And, and that's not the sole reason is, hey, I want people to call me and make cases. You also want to have relationships with people, you know? It's, right. That you know, that's part which ultimately, kind of, I think that's what kind of laid the groundwork for me starting to write and, and talking about you know leadership when I was on the you know on DEA on active. Well, so let's start kind of looking at that. Let's talk about that because you went from being the chief of domestic operations. I mean, two hundred what domestic offices, sixty five foreign countries. I mean, you had a lot on your plate and you learned a lot during that time. How did that experience lead you into what you're doing now? Because we want to talk about now, you know, what is Jimmy Capper up to now? Um, but, you know, I, what I want to do is we passed something, but I, I want to tell people how personal some of this was for you. And it was about your dad. I mean, you told us a really good story. I don't know if you want to share that, but I mean, your dad was an original victim in a different sense of uh, some of the drugs that he was on for because of his back. Yeah. So, well, so my, I say all the time, I think I said it earlier you know, there's two, when, when people are asked, who are your heroes and stuff? And I always say, I had two, two heroes while growing up. One was my father and, and the other one was my oldest brother who could do, to me, he could do anything. My oldest brother could do anything. He, he and I enlisted in the military nine months apart and he went in the Air Force. I went here. He was, next thing you know, he was got commissioned. He was running the Air Force's ICBM program and amazing guy. So, uh, which is still around. So we're, 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 we're really close. So, um, but uh, so my dad, when he got hurt, he broke his back and, and neck on the job. They told me never walk again. They told me, you know, he said to go out on uh, back then it was three quarters disability and it was tax free. So it was like, woohoo. And I think it was like, 
seven kids he had. We lived in Queens and he was getting like six or 7,000 a year. That's what his retirement was. And, uh, but they, but he was in so much pain because they fused his spine from his tailbone, almost all the way up to the middle of his back. And, uh, and you know, back then there, there, there wasn't the microsurgery that we had in the last 25, 30 years where they pull a disc. He had three, he had a, he, he his tailbone was completely obliterated. He had three crushed discs, um, that they fused. He had a hairline fracture in his neck that they didn't know that he had broke on the original. Cause he went back to, he literally, when he had the accident, he was out for two or three weeks and then went back on motors. And he said, I kept having pain when I threw my bike, my Lego, the bike, and it was the old Harley Davidson 1200 kickstarts. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so he finally went to the police sergeant. He says, let's take some pictures. And they went, holy shit, you, you should be standing. Long short, but he, he, he uh, went through the operation and they started him on a, a wonder drug back then called Darvon Compound 65. And I, I always put it this way, and I could, you know, could be wrong, but I think it was akin to what people said Oxycontin was first like. You're going to be able to function, mm-hmm. you know, because there's nothing, I, there's nothing worse than chronic pain. There just isn't. There's, watch people having family members deal with it. It's just, it's a miserable, miserable, you know, way of life. And so they start him on this, you know, Darvon uh, Compound 64. And we got used to, as we're growing up, I thought, go get me my pills, go get me my pills. Never thought twice about it. It's just the way it is. My dad wasn't abusive. He wasn't a mean guy. He didn't beat anybody up. But by the time I became a corpsman, a medic, and here I got the physician's desk reference, and I said, I'm going to look this stuff up. And realize it's supposed to be taking two pills every four to six hours. My dad's taking like six pills every two hours. He's got his doctors wow. prescribing him anywhere from 500 to 1,000 pills a month. And I'm like, I call him up. I never forget. I said, Dad, Dad, this stuff is no good. It's got a lot of aspirin in it. There's a toxic effect here and there. And of course, that's says, oh, what, what, are you, what are you, a freaking doctor now? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's really what, what, that's why we lost him so young is just, it just had a toxic effect on his kidneys and uh, his kidneys started failing on my first uh, year in college. And then they, they, uh, they were able to uh, get him to a doctor outside of the local doctor that he was at. And they, they diagnosed him and prognosed him and said, hey, look, your, your, your dad's addicted to this we got to get him on something else he has pain so um they got him on another injectable that they said this is going to be a lot more but um so he lived for another i think he died my first year the second year on the job when he he wound up you know the problem was it was too late and it killed his kidneys and and it ultimately got to his uh liver and then he he uh, got sent to the hospital and they kind of gave him a little valium to ease some stuff up and he kind of went into a, a semi-coma and then died in his sleep, but, um, and this is way before the opioid stuff or anything else. But I, right. I tell people that just because I said, Hey, listen, this stuff's been around for a while. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, the doctors didn't mean to, they were trying to help this guy out and stuff, but this is, you know, th- this is just the way it, it was. And it's funny. I, I think I told the story <laughs> the other day, Morgan, when I, I was out, I was speaking at the national drug courts association some years ago. And I, this is the first time I ever talked about my dad and, and, his, you know, his addiction to these pills when I realized it. And afterwards, some, some gal came up to the dais when I was sitting up there and she said, Mr. Capper, Mr. Capper, I'd like to talk to you. I said, yeah, sure. You know, I'm just, what do you want to know about DEA? What do you want to, she's like, really, I'd really like to know, sit and talk to you what it was like growing up in a dysfunctional family. And I was like, uh, <laughs> what? She's like, I really want to talk to you about what it was like to grow up in a dysfunctional family. And I looked at this lady and I said, oh, honey. And and I probably shouldn't said that, but I said, 
this is before everything was offensive. I said, honey, I said, my family yeah. put the fun and dysfunction. And she was so annoyed. You could see it in her face and walked away. <laughs> like, listen, man, you know, just was, you know, like, so. Well, get, that's what you want to say. Get over yourself there, sweetie. Yeah, man. I'm, you know, and I'm sure they assume that maybe, I, but I tell people this day, listen, my dad had a 10th grade education, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Um, I got more wisdom and knowledge from him without him saying fancy words or anything. He had a high expectation mm -hmm. for his children. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he would be very proud if he was alive today or 20 years ago. Somebody asked me not long ago, I was doing something, said, if you could talk to anybody, gone or present, who would you talk to? I said, I'd love, uh, someday I will be able to talk to him because my dad had a strong mm -hmm. faith. And uh, I said, I'd love to be able to sit with my dad and laugh and talk and, you know, and, and, uh, and just, just hear him, but good man. He's a good man. What do you I think? Gotta I got, I got to tell you one quick story about Jimmy here. And this is, I, I was a assistant special agent charged SOD and you were chief ops back then. And, and we'd all been called down to headquarters. We were in that first floor meeting room down there, just past the entrance to headquarters. And, and we're all waiting, you know, and we're waiting for the administrator. And I'm not going to mention her name at this time, yeah. uh, but you can figure it out. And uh, finally, I went over to Derek or whoever it was. I'm like, what, what the hell are we waiting on? We're wasting everybody's time here. And he said, well, we're waiting on the administrator and the chief ops to show up. And I said, I mean, they know we're here, right? You know, I'm just being facetious. And he's like, yeah. He said, uh, Jimmy's up there probably getting his ass chewed out for something. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, and so I'm just, then you go back to talking to everybody. And, and finally, you guys come walking in. And you came in with the biggest smile on your face. You addressed the entire group there. And that room was packed. That's probably the most people I've ever seen in that room. And I'm thinking, this guy just took a, a butt chewing from an administrator that I've seen give butt yeah. chewings personally. And I and let me tell you, <laughs> you could look up the term butt chewing yeah. in the dictionary and it would probably have that picture in there of her giving one. And you were the most professional, like nothing in the world bothered you. You set the example for everybody else to follow. And I thought, you know what? That's a freaking leader. That's who we need in the administrator's position. Uh, I mean, just and I haven't all these years later. I haven't forgotten that man. You you set an example for others to follow, and that's why you're a leader. Yeah, you know? maybe I hey, should have been on Darvon. I don't know. <laughs> uh, hey, Jimmy, let me I ask maybe you. Maybe Let me ask you a question. The reason I ask that is that you're two years onto the job. Your dad passed away right before, like you said, you got that big seizure, the, the biggest thing, because you didn't know any better except to ask for help. You know, work with people. If your dad had been alive, what do you think he would have said, you know, once once the details were heard? What, not not so much about the case, but about you and about the way you worked and the things you did, the way you worked it. I, you know what? I, I can tell you. He was, that's what he expected. Expect you to work like that. No, no, you know what I mean? I, I think I really do. You know, my, my dad wasn't a big, hey, you're, you know, like the Little League dag or something. There was just, he had high expectations and let you know what they were. Mm -hmm. You know, he just, this is. You know, and like, you know, I wrote about it. So my, my, it wasn't about moral superiority. It was about your character, your faith, your work ethic. Th those, those things were, were important and to get through life. And I used to say all the time, the only thing you have is if you're lucky, you'll have one, maybe two real close friends in life. And I, and I know what he means by that. You know, we joke when say the guy that you can call and say, I got to, I got to bury a dead body and he doesn't ask any questions, but he yep. says, but, but he said, your family, he said, and your reputation. And it's your reputation that always goes in front of you. And not to be fearful that somebody's not going to like me. He said, who, you know, the kind of man that you want to be. And, and, you know, someday you'll stand before God and you'll, you'll go, hey, am I the, and I'll 
well, you know, I would say, I'll, I'll be standing for him and say, I'm sorry, I'm, not, I'm still not who I should be, but I'm better than who I was. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think he would, he, he would say, you, you know, my, you've met my, you know, the expectations and stuff, you know, cause you know, I, I, I don't have, um, and we're fortunate in our family. We, cause we, we, it may be just a law enforcement, the gallows humor, but we don't have the daddy issues. And I'm like, my dad would have been, he got to see me get my badge and, uh, and he was so sick. I mean, he was, he was really, really very, very sick, but he, but he came down to Quantico and watched me, you know, get, get my badge. And if I knew any better back then, he would have been able to present it, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't think that, but, uh, uh terrific, you know, terrific guy learned a lot from him, but my, you know, my brother, Tony would always say, he goes, what is it with you? He goes, why did you get the pearls from dad? I go, you know, I was stupid enough to ask him questions all the time. Hey, I just, like, like, <laughs> you know, I, I wrote in my, one of my, you know, one of the books, I said, you know, I remember asking my dad, you know, I said, how'd you know that mom was the right one? I mean, my dad is like first generation Italian guy. He was like Pharaoh. You didn't talk. I didn't talk back to my dad till my second year in the Navy. And when I did, I was petrified. I thought he was going to hit me with the two by four. But, yeah. but I remember, I, mean, I don't know why. I just say, Hey dad, how did you know? I mean, how did you, how did you know? And, and he, this is his answer. He goes, you know, that you know, that you know. And I went, oh, all right, <laughs> that is a typical New Clear York answer. He said, so listen to this. This is real quick. I don't mean to go off, but I'm going to share in this city. So I, I meet my wife. I immediately am freaking head over heels. And uh, I start dating her. And every time, because I, I was going to college about 35, 40 miles from the house, in the reserves, just got out of service, you know. And so my father, one day, I'm, I'm at home. I'm helping him cook dinner or something. And, and he goes, hey, he goes, uh, what's with this girl? I said, what, what do you mean, Pop? He goes, what's, what's, uh, what's with this girl, you know, talking about her, this, that, and the other thing. I said, Pop, I said, I, I love her. I said, I'm crazy about her. I said, I'm going to marry this girl. He goes, you're going to marry her, huh? How do you know you're going to marry her? I go, look at him and go, hey, Pop, you remember when I was a kid? And I said, you know, how'd you know mom was? And he's sitting there with a half-assed, crooked, you know, no jokester, a serious guy. He said, yeah, he just nods his head. I go, Pop, I said, I know that I know that I know. He goes, all right. He goes back to cooking. All right. That was it. You know? and, I, and I had to ask him to co-sign a loan for like $1,100 so I can get a ring for her, you know, which he, which yeah. he did. But, you know, it's you know, part of who, who, you know, people say, what, what is it? What makes you up? A lot has to do with, and not, listen, I, I get it, man. Not everybody, if I tell my life to somebody, which I did in one of my books is somebody might say, wow, geez, it wasn't the greatest. It was great. When I look back at my life and my upbringing and everything else. I, it, you know, it wasn't, TV life, but, but, mm -hmm. you know, my, my father, you know, kind of prepared us for the, for, for our battle in our culture and in our world. And, and, and so as did my mom, I don't want to, you know, but we're talking about a guy who was a cop who, who loved his job. And then, you know, and, and I, one of the first things when I started talking about leadership, I said, he's the one when I, he would talk to, so when he would talk these about these stories on the street, they weren't ever about, I arrested a guy, had a shootout or something. He would talk because he worked a beat in Midtown. And he would talk about people just eking out in existence. And I will never forget the story with people. The he says, I knew everybody. I knew the shop owners. I knew the hypes. I knew the prostitutes. I knew everybody. And they all knew me. But this story that got me, and, and, and think of this from a leadership position all the time, is my dad was telling us one time, he goes, well, this is when I understood that he cared about people, that he liked people. And by, and when I mean like people, he's not a wuss. This is, this is a guy that I'm sure had his handful of punching people in the face on the beat. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I don't mean that to be macho. I mean, there was a t you know time in this country, you didn't, cops were revered, you know? Right. And he was there in the 50s and early 60s. And, and um, so he said we had to, he was telling me about, you know, we had to, even back then, had to round up the prostitutes on the street. And he looks over at me, he goes, you know what? He's, no matter why they did what they did, they sold their bodies for money. He goes, they were women. They should always be treated like women. And he would look and say, you always treat people with dignity and respect. That's from a guy, 10th grade education, Korean combat guy, you know. But you just, I just looked at it and said, okay, that's, it, but it, it took me years later to realize he cared about people. You know, he, he, mm -hmm. he might have been, I'm sure he was a tough guy. I'm sure he was an asshole to people from time to time, you know, that you, but you realize he, he cared about, and he knew people. He knew they were eking out an existence. He knew stuff like that. And it makes kind of an impact on you. Well, he's he set an example for all of his children to follow. Yeah, I, I, you know, like I said, like my brother Tony would always break my stones and said, I, I, I don't remember those things. I said, dude, you left the house at 16. What the hell? So, <laughs> <laughs> you were never around. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, but those kinds of things, Morgan, you were, you know, asked me, so how do you, how well, you, I want to know, you take all of those lessons, right? Um, because that's the reason I kind of teed it up this way, is that you learned so much from your dad when you were young. He, you lost him, you know, when you were young. Um, and But yet you still go on to do this, because what I'm very interested in now, and, and I want you to talk about too, is you distilled all of the stuff down into leadership. I mean, you, you speak a lot on leadership. You've got a site, and it's called FrontlineLeadershipGroup.com. Right. In fact, I have it up here right now with your smiley face, your bald head. <laughs> you're working out. You're ripping your shoulders out, Captain America. Captain America, I don't remember him being, you know, a little chunky like that, yeah. you know, with the big yeah. shoulders. He was more – anyway, but you look good in that suit, but you, you teach a lot on stuff. We're also going to talk, talk about your books real quick, too, because you, you sent me covers for the books that you wrote, but – what prompted you to say, once you left DEA, to say, this is my path now. This is what I want to do. I want yeah. to teach about these things that I learned growing up and on the job. So, one of, you know, I think probably when I, be, when I became an uh, executive assistant, a horse holder, it's, it's funny, you know, I started talking to, to some of the younger guys who wanted to promote and stuff. And I would find myself from time to time just... Just asking guys, well, why do you want to promote? You know, of course, they'd look at you and go, oh, God, is this a test? They go, no, we're, you know, what, do you, what do you want to promote for? What do you want to do? And it's nice to want to make some money and everything. But, you know, remember, you have an impact on people's lives. That kind of morphed into I got promoted to the chief of domestic operations, and I started talking more and more. And then they started inviting me down to the GSIs, and I would talk a little bit about domestic operations. GSIs? And, yeah, are... uh, Group Supervisor Institute. I'm sorry. And so this is where when young when the supervisors were being promoted, they used to have a 30-day or, or longer course, which was great. They don't do it anymore, I don't think because of money. But So they'd ask me to go down and, and talk to these men and women who were promoted, talk about domestic operations and DEA. And literally, I would do that for about 15 minutes. And then I talked about the importance of being a leader. And I would just do it on, it's just my own thing. It just the importance of caring about people and taking care of men and women, what that means and all this other stuff. That morphed into then being asked to go down to training to talk to, you know, the task force officers that came in and, and that, and then it got, you know, it more and more. And I would write things down. So if I, you know, if I said, geez, I, I, I just listened to this guy, Morgan Wright speak, and I would go and I would write stuff down that, that I liked or I heard about it. And it just kind of, it got a life of its own by the time it became the chief of operations when they would have division, um, what the hell was it? Division conferences and stuff. I get asked to go down and 
talk about the state of DEA, and then I'd always morph it into how important that, you know, that those kinds of things were. And I really kind of enjoyed And I knew what I was telling people was important. So here I am, you know, military background, you know, over, over 25 years of DEA, and you're telling men and women, you got to learn how to love men and women on your job. And what does that mean? And what, what, how does that look? What is that supposed to look like? And so um, when I was chief of ops, uh, long story, but I, when I was the chief of ops, I, I was commuting every four to six weeks to go home. Shelly and the kids were, were here. And I just, I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I remember coming home. I was going to, getting ready to, to drive up. Uh, Jeff Sweet and son was getting married. He was a Marine getting married. So on and the when way you up, said they were here, where are you at the time? I'm, are you I'm back in, in North New York? Texas. No, no. Nor- oh, is, North Texas? I've been in, we've been in North Texas for 16 years. But <clears throat> so, uh, so we're driving up to uh, go to Sweeten's place, and I start talking to my wife about, I, I, I got to get ready to go. I'm thinking about going, this, that, and the other thing. And my wife looks at me, she goes, you know, you always said you want to write a book. She goes, why don't you use the time while you're up there, Bryce? Because I was going crazy. Because, you know, you, I'm, my wife and I are together for 40 years, right? And 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 I like not only I love her, but I like her. And the older I get, I'm, I'm not good without her. And I, I know that sounds corny. I'm not looking for you know, to be a guy that writes uh, cards or anything, but I, I really, I know me. I know the guy that looks back at me in the mirror and I know how weak I am when it comes to not being around my wife. And uh, um, and I'm okay with that, the older I get. And so I said, it's just driving me crazy. And she said, you've always wanted to write a book. Why don't you, on the time you can, start start writing? So I said, okay. And she said, why don't you have a manuscript done? And this was October. She said, why don't you have a manuscript done by, this is October. So I'm thinking she really thinks highly of me. Why don't you have a manuscript done by Christmas? And I'm like, oh, you're effing mine. I don't know how to write a book. <laughs> she said, I'll tell you what. She goes, write it by my birthday in February. Birthday's February 9th. So I basically said, okay. So I went back to work. And during the norm, you know, Merck, the regular work days, pain in the ass from morning till night and everything. Oh, Yeah. But on the weekends, if I wasn't going down to my brother's house to help him out, because he lived down in Fredericksburg, I would go to the office, go on the personal computer. I had, over the course of my career, like 23 pages of one-liners. And like, I don't even know where to start, because I'm a left-to-right guy. And then uh, I just started writing. I just started writing, you know, my walk with DEA and the things that I learned and mistakes that you make and stories. They were They were true stories about things um, that I think were, were, I believed were important about leadership lessons and about legacy and about, you know, you start talking about loving people and, and it's weird because, you know, that, so that by the time I, I retired, so the day I officially retired, uh, the first, the, the book came out on leadership at the front line. And it's, it's, it's not, it's not, oh, you're going to learn everything. You're going to, this is, I'm going to give you the keys to the, you know, the, to the leadership kingdom. It's just my walk and things that I learned and mistakes that I make and the honesty about, you know, caring about people. And even when you do, people still will disappoint you. So I, you right. got to recover from that and stuff. But you, how you deal with people impacts morale and, and, and impacts productivity and all that stuff. It's not about, and, and the problem, the, the reality is, and it would be any agency, I've seen some really great leaders in DEA and I've seen some really shitty ones. And some of the shitty ones, when they promote it, they thought they were taller, smarter, and better looking than everybody else. I literally yeah. had an executive tell me when I was, when I got promoted, I got kind of promoted early, not kind of, I did. Asa Hutchinson 
saw something in me and he promoted me to the senior executive service. And, and this executive walked up to me. I never forget. He says, I don't talk to anybody, t- you know, two low levels lower than me. And I looked at this guy. I don't want to take a freaking baseball bat to his head. I said, are you kidding me? Yeah. And he walked yeah. in that kind of arrogance too. I said, oh my God. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of relationship do you have with your crew, with your team? So that's kind of what started it all, brother. It's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I did, I always do the weird things, you know, no matter when I was on a job, but I, I, I tried, I never done what, you know, people say, Hey, you got to do this. You know, when I was going to headquarters, they said, you got to go to OPR. You're only way you're going to get promoted. You got to go to OPR. I don't want to go to OPR. I'm going to go to a place called congressional affairs. That looks pretty cool. You're never going to get anywhere if you go to congressional affairs. Don't do it. Well, and OPR is? <clears throat> it's like internal affairs, office professional responsibilities. Okay. I, don't, I don't want to do that. I want to well, go. Well, see, yeah, when Murph said you're going to congressional affairs, I said, that's like making a kilo case down in Miami. Everybody's having affairs in Congress. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, oh, no, different? Different? Uh, is it different? But it was great, man. It was, it, it <laughs> yes. kind of was, but you do get to see how the sausage is made in our political system, and it's ugly. So, oh, yeah. but I mean, that's what it's awesome. I never, so. When I was getting ready to get out, I will never forget, um, I'm, I made up my mind. I went home on leave. I talked to our, our financial guy, and, and, uh, but I was ready to go. I'm, I can hear Joe Keefe in the back of my head. You're going to know when it's ready. You're going to know. You're going to know. And so my wife and I talk. I said, I'm going to pull the pin. She's, okay, when are you going to do it? I said, I don't, I don't know. She goes, if you don't set a date, you're not going to do it. So I said, okay, what if I do it in like three weeks? Three weeks? So I go back to Wow. I go back to um I go back to DC. By then, when I'm getting ready to retire, I had a full manuscript done. I had a company that I had online that was uh that was it was kind of a, a self-publishing company done. And I'll never forget, it was a Monday morning. I I flew in. Derek calls me. He said, Hey bro, what's up? I said, What's going on? Derek goes, I'm I'm gonna retire. I go, Well, I'm gonna retire too. <laughs> He goes, when you yeah. retired, I said, two weeks after, <clears throat> after IDEC. He goes, oh, shit, man. He goes, I'm going today to talk to her. So, you know, I walked into Tommy's office and I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going. He goes, ah, what do you got? What do you got? I said, I don't have anything. I said, I'm going to start my own little, you know, my own little business. And listen, I, I, I'm, I work for the government since I'm 18 years old. This is what I know, you know, between military and DEA. Right. I know nothing about business. I know nothing about. And when you said you said Tom, you're talking about Tommy. Yeah, Harris, Tom Harris was a deputy administrator. Tom and I were both supervisors in Newark, and yeah. I said, "Well, I said I got an idea. I got a little business I want to start, and I, I think I'll be able to make something of it." And then I went in and talked to Michelle, and I said, "Hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pulling the pin in a couple of weeks." IDEC was the following week. I said, "So if you don't want me to go to IDEC, I get it." But so IDEC kind. is the International Drug Enforcement Conference Enforcement? in Rome, was, of all places. It was Roma. Uh, yeah. So anyway, Roma. I, I, I pulled a pin. I got home, and for the next year, um, I wrote and we we uh, put together this little little leadership company. And you're in. What I didn't realize, well, I, I did that. the The leadership arena, um, especially speaking, is so filled with everybody and their brother. I mean, from twenty-three-year-olds yep. to, you know, to guys who are real serious guys who know, who've been through the, you know, the mill and back. A lot of them are. This is going to sound cheap. A lot of them are bullshit artists. You know, yep. I had a twenty-four-year-old kid from UNT graduated. Literally called me or got got hold of me through social media and said, "Hey, I'd I'd love to help you understand what mentoring is all about." I'm like, "What? What? Who, who are you? <laughs> he just graduated from UNT, but he has the balls to get all of me and." 
got to tell you how important mentoring is about, you know, and then you got to go through guys that sending you emails saying, I'll teach you how to have a you know million dollar speaking business. It's all bullshit. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yes. you know, you get, so many it's of just, those. and then, then I had to figure out what my value, you know, your value and your worth is. And then you have to realize one of the other things you realize, and I love speaking. I mean, I'm, I probably should have went into acting because I really enjoy, you know, speaking and stuff. But, um, the, the, when I'm, when you, uh, you know, as a warrior to public service, talk to other people about loving people, it, it can set people back. You know, I remember talking to a, a CEO when I was telling him what the bottom line was, is taking care of people because you don't, you don't understand business. And right away, he's like, you, you know, what do you know? So what do I know? Well, okay. So I got an $800 million budget. So okay, tell me what I don't know. He's the bottom line is this and the bottom line is that. And I looked at him and said, listen, man, I, I get that you're CEO and everything. But your bottom line is your men and women. And if you lead them well, no matter what goal you have, no matter your profit margin, they'll get you there if you take care of them. Because mm-hmm. uh, he's once going to ride them rough and everything. So it, not everybody gets it. Not everybody kind of agrees. Um, and that's okay. I, I don't, you know, I, I tell him I kind of stepped out of the boat and just said, this is what I'm you know, going to do. I had, I had one guy tell me, you're not going to be able to compete. What do you have to offer? Literally. A guy used to be a UNT professor. And I'm, you know, F you. I'm going to keep going. So, by, by, What's UNT? By University UNT? of North Texas. So by okay. by now, in my plan, I'm supposed to be a millionaire speaking to 20,000 people at a time. But that, that didn't happen, <laughs> which is good. Yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting on yeah, that, too. You know, but here's if you the, remember, Jimmy, you and I had a lot of, com- uh, a lot of conversations yeah, about man, this. So, but you know what? Here's the cool thing. You know, so... We're, we were plugging along, got the book going, you know, and like I said, if anybody, when I was growing up said, Hey, that guy writes, you know, you know, writes books, they would say, not that guy he was a friggin' moron. But, um, <laughs> so into the following year, my wife says, I used to tell the story to my kids. Cause that's the Eagle and the Seagull. She goes, you should really write that. And it's kind of using the Eagle as a metaphor about your calling in life and how do you face storms and everything. So we did. So I did that one, which was fun to do. My my brother-in-law, who's pastors a church in Western New York, actually used it to talk to his men's group about his uh, men's group about is because it's called a wisdom story for oh, cool. children and adults. And really, it's about when you're faced with storms in your life, what do you do? So we're going ahead, and you know, we got a couple of gigs, and things are starting to happen, and I'm enjoying stuff, and I continue to continue to write. My middle son comes up to me uh, and says, "Now he's a cop. He was a cop." here in Texas in one of the police departments. Very great department. His, his chief is a wonderful friend of mine. We'll never forget, he comes up to his dad. He said, can I talk to you? Said, yeah. He goes, what's wrong with my generation? Now, all of my children in their age range would probably be considered millennials. You know, I have them from mm-hmm. 36 to 25, I guess, is, is with the age range. And so I kind of stopped and I said, Mark, I said, well, he goes, what's wrong with them? What's, you know, when he was a hard-charging, you know, cop and stuff, and he's had his own walk and we kind of sat down and started talking. I said, you know, Mark, I, I've always had high expectations of you guys. We, I didn't, we didn't babe you guys. I said, I probably was a little bit too hard on you at times. Um, but all you guys in the world's eyes, at least, they look at you and they think, you know, they say you're successful, but more importantly, each one of you, you also know the Lord and I'm proud of you for your relationship with that. And you're finding spouses of who are, you know, equally yoked. So he got me on a conversation, talked to them. And then I went to talk to the boss, my wife, I said, what would you think if we wrote our story? She goes, what are you talking about? What would you think if we wrote our story about, you know, raising six kids, you know, like my daughter says, every time dad had a major meeting in the house, 
it was we were either moving or mom was pregnant or both. So <laughs> I said, well, what would you, if we just write our story and kind of a story of, of hope and, and really be honest about it. And my wife, because she's smarter than I am, says, as long as we're not telling people how to raise their children, I don't want to do that. So, well, it's just our story. So again, I'm left to write. So my wife and I, she was a co-author on the book, and we kind of wrote, you know, our, our story about what it was like to raise six kids of purpose and faith, get them up and move. Some of my kids had a little more adversity. In, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, none of my kids got in, you know, involved in dope. Nobody got arrested. But a couple of them had some some pretty significant, you know, adversity. My my one daughter went off to college and and because uh, um, um, I wrote about it, you know, and, it, and and got involved in a relationship and it went to it went to shit. And when she came back to us, she was, I mean, um, my oldest daughter, you know, just a mess. She was a physical, psychological, spiritual mess, and we kind of wondered if our daughter was ever going to come back to us. And uh, so. But before I wrote about it, I would say, I'm going to write about this. And I write that chapter and I, you know, gave it to her. I said, read this. If you're okay with this, if you allow me to do it, if not, I won't write it. I, I won't write it. My son, Mark, who went off to the Coast Guard Academy and, and, his, and his always struggled every year. You know, he used to say, I think about two things. I think about God. I think about women. and I think about getting thrown out of here. And then in his, in his end of his third year, uh, they threw him out because of academic a problem. So here's this kid crushed. All he wanted to be was, and he's the guy that'll tell you, all I wanted to be is Captain America. And so mm -hmm. we wrote his story, you know, his, he, now he's a DEA agent, you know, wrote, I wrote about it, did the same thing, but then he had a wife, read it. You're okay with it. If not, I won't, I won't write, I won't write it. So. Did you tell so, him the job of Captain America had already been filled by yeah, you? Yeah, no. So they, <laughs> so we did, you know, we, we, and we talked about, and we talked about, you know, I had a nephew that was, you know, killed in Iraq and, you know, how we dealt with that. I, you know, I was fortunate enough to be with my mom, lived those five years to hold her hand while she passed from this life to the next and got to talk about that, got to talk about drugs and sex and rock and roll and how we dealt with things and, you know, mistakes that we made. And it was fun to do. It was literally fun. And we got a lot of great um, endorsements from uh, great uh, faith-based teachers and speakers from around uh and we're still trying to push it because we really think it would be a good resource for people. And so, Tell us the name of that book because I love it. It's called it. Raising Courageous Children in a Cowardly Culture. So, you know, our, you, our, you know, I used to say, our, our, you know, every day the culture is antithetical. It's really anti anybody with faith and anti anybody with a moral positioning. And, uh, and, and, and how do you operate there raising kids when they're faced with that kind of shit every day? Um, mm -hmm. So... But so we were, we were real honest about it. So that went out. And, you know, we, we, when we go out and speak, when I was, we were on a pretty good gig and speaking, we get, my wife comes with me and we set up shop and we get to sell some of those things. They're fun. But I, we use them, I tell people it's a good resource if you want to know. And if anything, it's fun because this was funny shit in it too. There's, I just were very honest. And then when the COVID hit, in the midst of COVID, my daughter, my oldest daughter came, you know, I'll come up to me and she's, Dad, why don't you write those stories again? You know, when we were growing up, and that's the neat thing you wonder, you know, as you're pouring into your kids. And and again, don't get me wrong. I don't think we had this happy-go-lucky great. But you wonder if you're pouring into them, are they getting it? You know, Lord, are they, are they getting this thing, man? Are they, you know? Um, so she said, Dad, remember you used to tell us those stories when we were. So we had these routines. And so you go, when you could, right? When I could. When all of us, we were street agents. So when I could, we had this routine, you know, you, you know, 
Kids come home. You got to do their homework because my wife established all this. Get ready for bed at a certain time. You know, shower, come in, you say prayers, talk a little bit, maybe read something. And then when I found my kids really liked when I made stories up. So I started making these stories up for them. And I would be, and I'm, I would get very, very animated about it. So my daughter one day was sent, telling me, she goes, Dad, I, I want you, because she now has a couple of kids. She says, I really want you to tell Brett, her, my oldest grandson is Braden. I want you to tell Braden those stories. I said, that's your job. It's your job now to, to pass that. And then when, when COVID says, she's, Dad, why don't you write about those? So, of mm-hmm. course, I went to the boss again. I said, wait, what do you think if we sat down? I, I, I did like a three-book series on called Pop-Ups, Amazing you know, Bedtime Stories. <laughs> and that's uh, that's the most recent one. So they're the the characters are each character each book has two characters in it. They're kids. They go over to pop up in, in grandma's house, and inside the house there's a spare bedroom, and there's a a wagon, and it's a magical wagon, and they play in it, and it turns into everything from a little airplane to a submarine to a rocket ship, and there's always a nemesis in it, you know, in it, you know, there's uh, uh, how they get out of it, but it's just a fun, imaginative. Uh, story. That's it. And it was, it was, uh, it was fun to do. So. And for everybody listening, don't worry, we've got a book page. We'll put it all on here, but it's pop pops, amazing bedtime stories. It's the underwater voyage, the aviator's flight and the space quest. Yeah. Three different books. (laughs) Plus the Eagle and the Eagles, a wisdom story for children and adults, uh, raising courageous children in a cowardly culture, the battle for the hearts and minds of our children. You wrote that with your wife and then your leadership uh, book called leadership at the front line. And uh, I mean, it, you, it's from your site, right? So Frontline yeah. Leadership Group, and you're based out of North Texas, but yeah. you're available, as they say, to travel anywhere, uh, right? Yeah, no, we're, we're hoping, uh, um, you know, unfortunately, we got a couple of really good friends of ours that are chiefs out here and stuff, and things are just now starting to open up. So we're hoping that we can yep. get out. My my wife's hoping, too, to get, get me out of the house away from her. She works from at home. But uh, but again, like I said, if if there are, it's funny, because if there are people still around when I was growing up, they go, no, this guy made this shit up. He's, this guy? You know, I had, we went back to a couple family reunions. I didn't get that. Mine was more like, this kid's still alive. Yeah, you're apparently still, I used to stick forks I, and outlets and stuff. I should have told you this early, but re- just to, to, when I say this, people say, no, why do you say that? You, you know, you're always putting, I said, I'm not, I'm just being real. I was a boxer academically as rocks. So when I graduated high school, barely got, I was, I mean, when I say barely, I was, there was 120, I was 117 academically. There, there are kids in the special needs class that were higher than me in GPA, okay? That I knew for a fact. So I anyway, join the service, get out, long ways around. The, the captain of the football team in my small high school went out to West Point. Wonderful guy, terrific guy. Still know, Jeff Durnford. Wonderful guy. So uh, fast forward some years later, I'm in Intel school. Now I'm a young second lieutenant. I'm in intelligence school. I'm sitting in the officer's club with a couple of guys from my, my company, I think my was my wife with me. I don't, I don't remember. So I'm sitting there, and all I hear behind me go, Jimmy. I'm like, who the fuck? I turn around, and here's this captain looking at me, and <laughs> he looks at me and goes, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, I'm a worker. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I graduated, and I realize it's Captain Jeff Durnford, you know, West Point graduate and everything else. And it dawned on me when when uh, and he's a wonderful guy, just a t- terrific guy. But it dawned on me a little while ago. No wonder he said, what are you doing here? I can't imagine you being here. He was in the advanced course. Be an inmate. And I was in the, I was in the basic course. So, you know, because these guys, like, you shouldn't say, that. I said, I'm just being, I'm just telling you. It's fun to tell when people go, hey, yeah. you know. 
Yeah. He thought you'd be an inmate by yeah, then. Yeah, huh? I know. Well, you know what? We, I think they knew we weren't that, but, but you'd be probably working at a gas station or an assembly line, which is nothing wrong with that. But, yeah. you know, you shake your head and go, oh, boy. <laughs> but, but, you know, Captain America rose to the challenge, took it all on, and now you've got a fantastic story, man. I, I tell you. Yeah, it is. It's great. Uh, and we well, got, and we leave a good legacy. Our, our kids, you know, one of the, in all seriousness, it's hard to grow up in these families and not be impacted some way or another. Good, bad, or indifferent. I mean, you know, Murph, you and I were talking, you know, we, we do our best to raise our kids and they make decisions, you know, uh, that, that you got to deal with, you know, and, and we've yeah. had to do that in, in life and stuff. But um, I, I was hoping for an investment banker, one of my kids, so I can have a big boat someday and. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're in public service. I got a daughter who's in music ministry and works for the Air Force. So I got a, a Oh, son. so you're rolling in dough, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's a, they're all, they're yeah. all the rest of them in public Well, you know, service. but if you got all of them combined and just said, hey, look, daddy needs, this is this is like a typical <laughs> Fed seizure. I just need a percentage of the yeah. take no, each forget month. Because we'll they're all be married. Well, except for one, they're all married. I don't blame their wives or husbands. We ain't giving you a dime, old man. So, <laughs> but it's great. We have six grandkids now, and and uh, I will say this: uh, people used to say, "Well, you have grandkids." I go, "Hey, listen, I came from a big family. I have a big family. Grandkid is just another mouth to feed, and it's not. They're the best. They are. It's just not because well, you like can a, shake them up and give them back to the kids. It's like, yeah, hey, not, but there's something about when that little girl, little boy, looks at you and goes, "Pop up!" and comes running into your arms, you know, or or I, my son Mark. Who's actually lit him and his wife and his little girl living with us before they transfer up to to uh, Denver to Colorado? He said, "Dad, I don't think you loved us like you love my daughter." I said, Prob- yeah. "Probably not." But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what my kids will say. You know, I, I wore glasses, and, and as the kids are growing up, you're wrestling, especially with the boys. And I'm like, "No, no, no! Don't touch my glasses. Let pops, t- you know, let dad take his glasses off." Well, then the granddaughters oh, yeah. come along. We got five granddaughters. And they reach up and, you know, when they're little, the first thing it touches is your mustache, yeah. then your nose. And they reached up for my glasses. And all my kids, it was Christmas, all four of them said, don't touch yeah. dad's glasses. <laughs> and I'm looking at them going, shut up. She can touch whatever Damn she wants right, to. Damn right, man. You know what my daughter said to me one time? She goes, dad, you, never let dad, us touch you would have never let us get away with that. I go, That's and right. this is what I told her. I go, honey, <laughs> your father was very stupid when he was raising you. I'm sorry. There's certain things you realize that aren't important. <laughs> But, well, I told mine, and you're still not allowed to touch that. Yeah, yes. that's exactly. <laughs> not that you're wrestling around in the ground with your grown children right now, Murph, but no, hopefully oh, not. Hell so. no. Yeah. Right? So, uh, uh. But hey, well, uh, it's been great, man. It is, I, I got to be honest with you. One of the opportunities, especially here, talking about all these things, you look back and go, I've been, I've been, I've been so my, I've been a blessed man. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, I mean that, man. Right. I have been incredibly blessed in this life. We've had to deal with a lot of different things. I have to deal with, you know, uh, people say, oh, you have this, that, and the other. Hey, man, I'm, you know, going to the doctor's office and he tells you you have cancer. Uh, okay, what do we got to do? I got to deal with that. So we had to deal yeah. We had to deal with stuff like that. Cancer-free now. But, I mean, what I, sometimes people hear me and they think, oh, somehow that you had some kind of super, like, look, we're dealing with the same thing that everybody's dealing with. Family issues, financial yeah. stuff, health issues. But but we never give up, man. We always train that way. You never get up. You keep going. Get back up. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Be faithful. Keep getting back up. And then for, for me, when people say, what's, what is your biggest impact? Be, to be perfectly honest with you, my biggest impact is when I take my alone time with the good Lord and just say, hey, thank, I, I, I have no other thing to say but to thank you for 
where we're at, where my family's at. Knowing full well that tomorrow's not promised. You know, we get we only got X right. amount of breaths. And that's what I tell people at the end of my, you know, in the end of my talks and presentations. I said one of the things that I've realized the older I got is we only have X amount of breaths. And so what are you doing in the time that we have? And that's so important in a leadership position is what are you doing in the time that's been given to you? How are you going to impact men and women? How are you going to impact them for the better? How are you going to impact your family? Because you know as well as I do, we, we've watched a lot of people lose everything to pursue you know, the brass ring or to pursue a promotion or position. And, and all of us, if we're fortunate enough to be laying on our beds, breathing our last breaths, every one of us is going to have regrets about should have forgiven more, should have loved more. Should We know that intrinsically, and yet we still do stupid shit. You know, we still negate somebody. We still forget to call somebody up and tell them, I love them, I forgive them, please forgive them. You know, we, we do this. So I, I try to tell people in the grand scheme of things, get X amount of breaths. And I think, I think some of the best men and women that I worked with is they understood, I only got a moment. How do I impact people in this moment that's been given mm-hmm. to me? And I think that's, yeah. a, mm-hmm. I think that's important. That puts things in perspective. I had it put in perspective Absolutely. really good for me one time by a guy who says, look, I've never, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have died. You know, I've talked to their families said not once have I ever heard anybody on their deathbed go, gee, if I'd only spent more time at the yeah. office. Yeah, of course. You know? That's mm-hmm. true. That's, and we know that intrinsically, right? We, 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 we know that. And yet even to this day, even to this day, you know, we still weren't involved in stuff. I, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be a, a downer or anything. It's just, I think, I think, what is it that keeps you going, man? What is it, you know, somebody said in retirement, what, you don't have gigs. You don't have this. I said, yeah, but I'm still, we're still trying to pursue that. Uh, I have a good friend of mine. I call him an accountability brother that we meet with every couple of weeks. COVID has kept us from this, but I was bitching one day about no gigs, no this. He said, you know what? How much time have you got to spend with your grandkids? I said, a lot. How about your kids? I said, you know, a lot. He goes, that's a good thing. And I just sat back. I said, you know what? You're right. You're right. So the thing is I'm telling people not to take for granted. I'm doing it. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. So brings you full circle yeah. say, Hey, dumbass. Hey, yeah. listen, what, this is good opportunity. We have, I have, you know, I get a paycheck every month. My wife's got a great job. When I used to bitch and complain about stuff, she goes, look around, you dumbass. Look at the house you have. Who, we got a pontoon boat on a lake 20, 20 miles from here. You, and you're complaining? What the hell's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, well, I need a bigger, stuff. daddy needs a bigger boat. I need some more <laughs> speaking gigs. So. It's true. But, <laughs> but that's what I mean. It's like, I'm not content with that. I'd, I'd rather... So I said, if you could wave a, a wand, what would it be? I said, I'd love to be able to speak at least, if I could, you know, two times a month, even three times a month. Because, you know, as well as you know, Murph, as much as you know your subject matter, it's a, and Morgan, you do too. I know with cybersecurity, you, you, man, you, you go over stuff over and over and over again and put that work in, but it's worth it. You know, it's yep. worth it, but. Anyway, yeah, brothers, well, it is. Well, I'll tell you what's been worth it. It's been worth it having you on, man, to hear your story. Absolutely. Um, and look, you know, when Murph first told me about you, I'm going, oh, you know, he's going to come on, Capra. We're going to hear something about how he was famous and related to a filmmaker. And No, but you know what you are? You're the I, I got a friend of mine that was uh, used to be on NYPD, uh, Cold Case Squad Lieutenant up there. Same thing. Just there is a difference between East Coast and West Coast. But the one thing is when you make friends with people in New York, they're friends for life. They're not fair weather friends. You know, they're friends for life. Yep. And you're even though you're in North Texas now, we found out we know some of the same folks now, yeah. you know, between Steve Dye and, you know, Troy Derby and yeah. stuff. I mean, you, you make friends for life. And so, uh, you know, Murph, again, 
when I thought he was going to go off, you know, and steer me wrong, he has not. He has, he has, he has excelled. <laughs> and you with your hands, dude, this Italian thing with I your know. hands. Hey, that's what shut the freaking thing off earlier. <laughs> the hell? Well, I'm yes, talking folks. for five minutes, and you both are still looking at me sort of way going, something's wrong. <laughs> then I realized Murph's trying to call me. What the hell? I kind of got, and I'm like a kid. Honey, honey, I did something to the computer. <laughs> yeah, if you, if, if, you, if you ever want to give uh, Jimmy a stroke, just tie his hands together and ask him a question. He won't have, be able to I, answer. I, I got to bring my hands That's up it. like this. Stop, stop waving them around. <laughs> All right, brother. Well, hey, man, is... I got to tell you, what, what a great story, uh, great stuff. And again, two years on the DEA, 21, you know, almost 22 tons of Coke, 12 million in cash. All I got to say is, what have you done for me lately? Though? Uh, I know, I know. Oh, well, yeah. we, again. You get those things because you work with great people, you know, and you know what I mean? Yep. Guys and gals that want to do the same thing. So it's been, it's been, and those to this day, uh, you know, we, we have a best friends for life, you know? So uh, yep. that's how, it's, that's how it's you a brotherhood. Yeah, man. It's, it's all good. It's all good. Thanks yeah. a lot for having me say, on, Jimmy, guys. I really appreciate it. What, it was a fun it's time. It's been an honor. I told my wife it's last night, just going through the call the other day, I said, I, you know, after that call, I got all energized and stuff. I said, maybe I should start writing again. <laughs> Good. Good. Write, write a book about Game of Crimes and the awesome guests we have on. We'll be waiting for it. We'll put it on our book page. All right. All right, guys. Everybody, this is us saluting honor, you. Brother. Thank you for your service, sir. Everybody, stay tuned for the debrief. You know, Steve, 21 tons of cocaine and 12 million in cash, that is now would be considered personal use. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Especially you're out in uh, Washington or Oregon. Sorry, guys out there, but dang. <laughs> 20, I mean, 21 tons of cocaine and 12 million in cash. All, like you say, these guys were so arrogant, they thought they could get away with it as opposed to diversifying the risk, keeping the cash in one place and the dope in the other. They put it all together and it made it easy for Jimmy to, uh, you know, obviously Jimmy will tell you, and he said he didn't do this himself. Right. But the guy who's spearhead, I mean, these guys are working this. And here's a guy who basically admitted to an L.A. sheriff, uh, you know, detective, uh, sergeant. He says, man, I don't know what I'm doing. He was not afraid to ask for help. And because he was not afraid to ask for help and understood the value of working collaboratively with people, right. they end up, like you say, at that time and for many years afterwards, having the largest seizure of cocaine. Ever. And, you know, and, and hearing his story about how he would call headquarters and they kept blowing him off. I mean, there's you got to understand when you age out in law enforcement, if you're not willing to accept that everybody's changing and we as law enforcement need to change, it's time to pull the pin and retire. You know, so thank the good Lord that, that Jimmy hung in there all the time. God bless him. I mean, just him and his family, a family of service now, public service. I mean, this is like the all-American family. This could be the, uh, what they call the Incredibles, you know, in that cartoon. Yeah, except the guy on the Incredibles has more hair than Jimmy, so. <laughs> yeah, but I think Jimmy's got a bigger chest as he does. He's there's, a big boy. <laughs> there's the power washer. We heard the power washer this time. Murph Sorry is at, about that. They are right outside. They haven't done this all day till just now. <laughs> Murph is at the beach having fun. Yeah. Anyway, so here's what we'll do. Get my bald spot sun. So here's what we'll do. Um, I will simply sign for Murph and whatever he says, I will do it in interpretive uh, sign language and we'll see if you guys can, oh, it's a podcast. You can't see this anyway. Too bad. So here we go. No, Hey, but I'll tell you what, what a great episode. We got some really good stuff coming up, but our hats off uh, to Jimmy Capra for coming on and telling just a fantastic story. So 
Hey, but if you like that episode, if you liked what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Remember, they both have single stars. So there's only one rating available for Game of Crimes on all of these services. It's five stars. We've, we have decreed it. That's the way it is. Gone over and help us. We don't know exactly how it works. It's magic. It's Magic Kingdom. It's David Blaine all rolled up into one. Head on over to GameofCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We constantly update it. Follow us on that thing called social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, paypal.com. Just use Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you. But really, got to go get on Patreon. We've just brought on so many more people this month. We're having great fun with our 911 series. Um, our random surprise that's coming out will be out towards the end of this month. It's going to be fun. Like I said, we just got through doing the review of uh, Hannibal Lecter. Anthony Hopper, what a great job he did talking about eating his liver with fava beans and a nice Chianti. Gross. That's so gross. And he's as gross as you are, I have to say. Not as gross as that freaking power washer going on in the background. Sorry. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, hey, look, we hope you enjoyed this, and we hope you guys like this episode, and we keep bringing more stuff to you. And we've got some surprises in store for you. We're going to be doing some things a little bit different with the format of the show. We're going to experiment with a couple things. Just give us your feedback. Send it to uh, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think as we revise this. But in the meantime, thank you guys for being players in the biggest, baddest most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. 